experience on Halloween. It was released across the country uh, in October and November of 78 to not very good reviews. Somehow it caught on and began to develop a word of mouth. And I was off directing a TV movie called Elvis, so by the time I'd finished that, I was invited to New York to speak at some deal, and they were screening Halloween, and I was standing outside waiting to go in, and it was just the screams over and over and over again. It was music to my ears. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Real Talk, a movie podcast we want to be your go-to source for ratings and recommendations of past and present films. I am your host, Wes Jones, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Hey, this is Tommy, podcasting straight from Nashville, Tennessee. The Movie Buddy Conway, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Hello, Real Talk community. As always, thank you so much for downloading the episode. It's fall. It's October. I'm really in the Halloween spirit this year, and for good reason. Audience, remember how excited the movie buddy got for Shark Week? That's how excited I am for this episode. We're talking one of my all-time favorite movies, one of the most influential films of all time, and a film that hits close to home, which we're going to discuss that here in a little bit. Tonight, we're talking John Carpenter's horror masterpiece from 1978, Halloween. And so let me bring my co-hosts in here and check on them, because I don't know if they're quite as excited as I am. Gentlemen, how are we doing this evening? I'm doing good, Wes. Thanks for asking, man. My Halloween decorations are up. I, uh, I got to tell you about the day I watched this movie, man. It was a perfect fall day. I went and played golf with my dad. I remembered my golf clubs this time, Wes. Aren't you that's proud? Good. That's good. You're taking a step forward. Yeah, that's an object you need when you play golf, and I remembered it this time, but it, we got to see the leaves change. I had me some apple cider. I watched this movie, and bam, I was in the Halloween spirit. I even now, went wait to, a minute. You, huh? you, you watched the leaves change? How long did you golf? I mean, you could just already see the leaves change. Oh, what okay. I was saying, you know, okay. you know, I'm a leaf watcher now. I'm I'm, I'm older. Plus, <laughs> I, I got to watch Casper Whoa. and Hocus Pocus at the drive-in. Man, I'm in. I'm full on Halloween spirit, Wes. No, that's cool, man. Super excited, Wes. When you told me that we're about to uh, review and analyze Rob Zombie's Halloween, wait, wait I couldn't have been more excited. <laughs> I watched it. I even watched the sequel. I love Rob Zombie films. We're going to take a deep dive into his filmography. So, yeah, um, 
What? What is there an issue, Wes? What's the... yeah? I, it, we're actually talking John Carpenter's Halloween, not zombie <laughs> Halloween. I'm not prepared. All right. Well, don't. I've seen it enough, Wes. I'll have to change gears here. I'm very disappointed we're not doing Rob Zombie's Halloween, but maybe next time. Okay. Oh man, I've... my notes were on Halloween H2O. We're not doing Halloween H2O. <laughs> no, not that one either. Okay. Hey, you can't steal my joke. That's just the joke I just did. I stole it after you, so it was like <laughs> people were expecting it. Okay, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Okay. Well, as you know, we always like to have fun on this podcast, and tonight is certainly no exception. But I mean, for me, honestly, it's always intimidating to review one of your favorite movies, especially when that movie has such a passionate fan base that Halloween does. I'm going to try my best to represent my horror community well, but we brought some reinforcement to ensure that Real Talk doesn't screw this up. Our guest host tonight is the creator and host of a podcast that I personally love, Land of the Creeps. I first heard him on a podcast on an episode of horror movie podcast when they did their four-part 80s slasher series of episodes. And I liked his work so much on those episodes that I started listening to his podcast and became a fan. And this is why I'm such a fan. First, he's a country boy like myself, a southern gentleman. He is very experienced podcaster, extremely knowledgeable on films, especially horror. But the best thing about Greg is his passion. He is so passionate about film, about life, and the fans of his shows. It's just infectious listening. And so it's hard not to have a good time when Greg Morgan, a.k.a. Greg of the Mortis, is in the house. So, Greg, welcome to the show. All right, all right, all right. What's up? <laughs> and wait a minute. I thought we was talking Friday 13th. Oh, yes. That's the best no, we... joke I've heard today. Oh, God. oh wait, we're talking... Oh, see, because when I heard T-Man sitting there talking about zombie, I was getting ready to check out. But it's okay, we're back, because we're talking John Carpenter Halloween. Okay, so we're good. All right, we're good. Now, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? <laughs> Man, seriously, thank you so much for being on the show. We are so excited to have you here. Uh, thank you for the invite, dude, and all the kind words. Very undeserving, but thank you, buddy, for real. I'm excited. Can't wait to talk. My favorite movie of all time. So, audience, here's what we're going to do tonight. Again, this episode is all about celebrating John Carpenter's Halloween, and we're going to attack that idea in a variety of different ways. Greg is known as a super fan of Halloween, so we'll get his experience and perspective on the film. We're going to talk about dissolution of the slasher genre and how Halloween impacted it. And then finally, we'll do a walkthrough of the movie and discuss it. So first, like I said, introduction to Greg. And so we just want to spend just a little bit of time getting to know him. So Greg, first... Tell us all about Land of the Creeps. Well, thank you there. Uh, yeah, Land of the Creeps, uh, we've been going for several years. This is my technically second po uh, podcast, I should say. I originally was Creeps, your feature horror show. That would have been back in 2009 up to, I don't know when we started Land of the Creeps. But anyways, then Land of the Creeps has been going on. We're on episode 229. Uh, we'll be recording, actually 230 will be recording this week coming up as we're recording here and um yeah i mean it's just a just a love passion that i had to do was a horror podcast back way back in the day and uh, i knew i wasn't gonna be an actor i knew i wasn't gonna be a, a performer writer director so i said i like got the gift of gab so i said well let me just see if i can do something about talking <laughs> and uh, <laughs> at the time my podcast partner original podcast partner used to go by dirty joe uh him and i 
hooked up and had a good friendship. He used to work in a movie store, so we got to talking and man, guerrilla warfare style, man. We started because back then wasn't as popular and relevant as it is now with podcasting. Uh, so it was kind of different, and we guerrilla warfare. We had a rock band mic, and we both shared it, and a lot of popping back and forth with mic, and a lot of off like this right here and then come back in like this, you know, so it's, it's a nightmare, uh, but flash forward, man, I've been blessed and we love our show and love the host right now, uh, which we've been blessed with a lot of good hosts. But anyways, with Bill Van Bagel and Dr. Shock, Dave Becker and Sean Davis, when he's able to hop on. And I know a lot of people have been asking about Sean and Sean's still trying to do his, his lawyer bit and he's going through the bar exams and different things. So he's not been able to be on, but, Sean is still technically part of the crew and hopefully they'll be able to pop on, but we just love horror, man. That's, that's all we're about. We love our community. We love our people. Uh, we got a great community, I think. And I think you do as well, Wes. And, uh, I just, I appreciate everyone that always pops on and Wes, you've been on the show and I uh, had a great time and it, it's just a fun, we like to just keep it casual. And that's what I like about you guys, man. You bring in a lot of knowledge. You bring in your different takes of different genres, which I love. And, uh, Y'all got a good rapport, and I love that as well. I just don't like the podcast. It just seems like it's always bashing or belittling or, you know, it's hard to get through. I just like to have fun, and that's what I'm doing, and I love to do it in a fun, informative way. So I, I, I wish you do like horror that you'll come over and check us out. If not, that's cool. Stay here, too. There's room for everybody, and <laughs> have fun. But if you do love horror, give us a shout-out and give us a check-out, man. We're everywhere you need to be at. Well, I mean, I, I, I've said it many times on the show. I highly recommend your show. You're the third host that we've had from Land of the Creeps with Bill and Dave Becker uh, stopping by. So we're yeah. running running the gamut here with the Land of the Creeps hosts. But I do have a I do have a question. Whenever you you know started podcasting, now what eleven years ago when when you guys got started, there was probably no podcast directories or anything like that. So were you just Whenever you would record your material, were you just putting it on a website, or how were you getting that material out to people? Well, no, actually, you know, iTunes was still there. Not as many platforms like Stitch. I don't think Stitcher was there at the time. It may have been. I don't remember. But, um, no, it's a little different. It was a little bit more scarce, scarce, I should say. Here, there's my country, scarce. Uh, <laughs> it was a little more scarce back then. But, I mean, basically, we were recording with a software that was um, – Gosh, I don't even remember. I think it was Audacity or something. It would only let you record up to an hour at a time. And uh, we would literally be watching the clock. And we originally started, now this would have been Creeps Your Feature, but we originally started as just an interview show. We basically were interviewing uh, directors, writers, producers, actors. I mean, we had everybody from David Hess to uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis and you name them. We had several, Daniel Harris. So we originally started that way, okay. and I kind of broke free from that and went more into reviewing movies. And uh, then Land of the Creeps happened, and uh, we took off from there. And since the last, what, love, uh, probably year, at least this year alone, we've, we've changed formats a little bit more and doing more of theme shows where we used to pick franchises or individual movies we still do that to an extent but i mean after you've been in it a while you've already reviewed most of the franchises you don't want to keep reviewing friday 13th 13 times right so <laughs> yeah we tried to change it up a little bit and we've gone more to theme subjects which i've enjoyed i think it's been a blast i, I know the listeners seem to like it so yeah that's where we're kind of at but yeah to answer your question 
I'm a gabber. So <laughs> to get back to your question, yeah, it was a little bit more scarce. You had to do it a little differently uh, than what you do now. So it's a little more easy to put stuff out. Well, you're a well-known Halloween super fan, and it's your favorite movie of all time. Yes! You will... <laughs> it's good, yes. Just, just tell us that about a... your your first yeah. experience with the movie and about your love of the film and just how it grew over the years. Easily, man. It was 1981. I used to never remember the date. I just always remember the night. And it was on Halloween night. I remember I went trick-or-treating and I'd come home, went in the bedroom, had my big sack of, of candy. And I remember spreading it out over the bed and I'm sitting here going through candy. And I had my little 13-inch black and white TV. Uh, at the time, it was a white TV, which was really cool. I don't know if y'all remember that. I mean, you're, you guys are considerably younger than I am. But, you know, you used to be able to, like, have a, a knob that you could turn and get, you know, the dirty channel sometimes if you did it just right. <laughs> <laughs> So anyways, needless to say, first time I remember watching Halloween uh, as a kid there again, coming out of trick-or-treating, sugar high, cut the TV on, and lo and behold, was this black and white movie, which wasn't black and white, but for me it was because it was on a black and white TV. But anyway, I'm sitting here and I'm mesmerized with what's in before me. Like I didn't never seen anything like this and I was scared, but I was scared not to watch. So I was just so into that movie and from that moment i was just in love with horror that that movie alone and it is 1978's halloween changed me like literally made me fall in love with horror it was that thrill that that fear and i was telling my wife pearl today like we was watching again for like the 3000th time and and i literally told her it's still i was my leg was shaking while i was watching it because of the tension, I get, if I get real tense, my legs start, I'm sitting here like I've seen this movie a million times. I think I know he shot him six times, but you know, it's still that, that thrill of watching it for the first time. And I don't know, it, it just changed me, dude. It literally blew me away. I couldn't quit watching it, even though I'm looking under my sheets and I'm looking up cause it scared me so bad. And Oh, to find that thrill once again, I wish <laughs> that lightning in a, in a bottle would hit again like Halloween did for me. I love that story so much. And, and when Dave was on, he told us, you know, the movie that he went to go see and the whole story around it that just made him fall in love with with movies. And it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. And I just love those stories that, that people have that get them in the movies or or, you know, why it's one of their favorite films. And over the years, you know, you've collected merchandise, you've been to conventions, and I believe you've actually met Jamie Lee Curtis. And so tell us about that experience. Yeah, collect, um, man, I own Halloween like 22 times on different formats. And yeah, I've, I got a whole bookshelf just for Halloween. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a nerd uh, tattooed on my body. But yeah, the first time I met, or the only time I've actually met Jamie Lee Curtis uh, was in 2012. And I remember my buddy, uh, Kenny Caperton, who owns the Myers house NC, uh, to check out MyersHouseNC.com and go over there and follow Kenny. He owns the, uh, replica house. Like he had a house built that is basically looks identical to the original Michael Myers house. And he lives in it. But anyways, Kenny and I are real good friends. And he had messaged me back in 2012 and said, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, was coming to Greensboro, North Carolina which was only at the time, you know, two and a half hour drive from me. So I was like, when is it? You know, I got to make this happen. It was at a Barnes and Nobles. And uh, so needless to say, of course, I went 
and uh, she was doing her children. She writes children's books, and uh, she was doing a book reading and signing at books uh, at Barnes and Nobles. So Kenny and I, being nerds like we are, we show up. <laughs> yeah, we're the only adults, literally adults, sitting here, and you can see her looking at Kenny and I, knowing. <laughs> like you guys are not little children, you know, I know what this is. And she's always made it known that she would not sign any Halloween merchandise, especially at a children's bookstore. So you knew going in, I was not going to be able to bring a Halloween poster. I was not going to be able to do any of this. So we had to buy a book. We bought a children's book. I still have it today and I love it. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> so we're sitting there and the story goes on. I do have Jamie Lee Curtis tattooed on the inside of my right arm. Um, it's the iconic scene in Halloween. Uh, after she had just stabbed Michael Myers in the neck with the uh, needle from the uh, yarn, and she's standing there with a butcher knife, and she kind of leans up over the sofa. That's my inside arm. And um, so I get up. As soon as I walk up to meet her, it's my time. I waited for hours. Uh, she looks at me, and she, you can see it in her face like an old boy. <laughs> so <laughs> I walk up, and I, I'm, I'm mesmerized. Like I've had the biggest crush. She's like my crush of all time. And I'm sitting here standing before Jamie Lee Curtis as she's sitting, and I'm just in awe. I'm, I'm starstruck. And uh, I just tell her, I said, I'm, I'm such a huge fan. And she doesn't really give me time of day per se at the time, but I told her, I said, I'm such a nut for you that I tattooed you on my arm. And she said, I got to see this. So I pull up <laughs> and literally, can we say, I, I guess I'll do PG version here. In front of all these children at a Barnes and Noble book sign, and she literally looks at my arm and says, Oh, F, like, wow, <laughs> like, literally. And then she puts her hand over her mouth and she's like, I am so sorry. <laughs> so she's, I mean, echoing in Barnes and Noble, she says the F word. It was crazy. Uh, but anyway, she looks at it, she starts taking pictures, and she knows I'm a fan, okay? Um, so anyways, I do have her sign my, uh, children's book. I still have that signature, the only signature I have by her, um, such a great moment. Well, then flash forward after meeting her and she's super nice. She's probably one of the nicest women you'll ever meet in your life. Uh, flash forward a couple weeks later and she's on Jay Leno, which at the time Jay Leno was still on air and she was doing a promotion tour for her book. And also she mentioned during that time, she was going to be doing her first ever convention, which was Horror Hound, uh, which go check Horror Hound. Uh, but anyways, Horror Hound was doing one in Indianapolis, I believe it was at the time, Indiana. And um, she literally was telling Jay Leno the whole spiel about how she met this guy named Larry, <laughs> a.k.a. Greg Amortis. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, she literally, they pulled the picture of my arm up on Jay Leno's show. There's my arm blowed up with her face on there. And she's talking about crazy. And Jay Leno goes on to talking about how, you know, stalker. And she's, no, he's not a stalker. He was actually really nice. And he's like, yeah, right. Okay. That's why you carry a crowbar with you. Okay. But anyway, <laughs> that's my story. Genuinely. Super nice. Uh, wish I'd have met her again. Hopefully I will in the future. Did meet John Carpenter as well. But anyways, yeah, that's my story. I'll quit gabble. No, no, we love it. This is why we wanted to have you on for, for this type of material and you're knocking it out of the park. So thank you so much for sharing that.
All right. So we're, we're going to get into our first segment. We've got two segments before we do a walkthrough of the movie. And we first, we want to talk about John Carpenter, because if this movie was not in the hands of John Carpenter, we probably would have never heard of it before. And so, again, let's talk a little bit about him. And so, guys, and this is for everybody, guys, when you hear the name John Carpenter, what do you think of? Legend. Well, <laughs> yeah, Greg, that's, that's, that's awesome. I love that. I was going to just say... Um, when I think of John Carpenter, I always think of that late 70s, early 80s run where he comes up with just so many classics right in a row. Uh, you know, Halloween, Escape from New York, The Thing, They Live. And, and I, you know, that's one of the greatest runs for a filmmaker. I agree. Absolutely. Gabe, your thoughts? Halloween. That's, I mean, you asked me what I think of when I think of John Carpenter, Halloween. How did the marketers not come up with a movie named Halloween earlier? <laughs> like, movie makers are not marketing. How did it take till 1978? And and honestly, if you're making the movie Halloween, how much pressure are you under? Everybody's like, you know, what am I going to watch for Halloween? Whoop! I guess I'll go watch Halloween. And what if that movie sucked? <laughs> what if that movie sucked? <laughs> there was a lot of pressure right now I've, I've never thought of it that way but that's it's, a great it's like point. you wes you know you're interviewing one you know last week i had a lot of pressure i had matt on here i've listened to his podcast for years this this week you're under a lot of pressure you got greg on here he's got a jamie lee <laughs> curtis tattoo he met her she mentioned him on jay leno you've got a lot of pressure this is your favorite movie don't freak out on us okay i'll, I'll try yeah. not to <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> So uh, we've uh, we've talked a lot about it on this show, but Gabe and I we podcast from Bowling Green, and T Man he's he lived here for over a decade, and then you've got John Carpenter and John moved uh, John's father moved their family to Bowling Green in 1953 when John was five years old. So in other words, that makes us uh, almost best friends with John Carpenter, right, guys? Yeah, yeah, I I put him. I'm on my Facebook link um, as, you know, you can link people as like friends and family. Uh -huh. I tried to link him as best friend. He denied my request, but <laughs> I want to keep trying. You keep going, T-Man. You know, I got a question. We got a Henry Harden Harry statue here in Bowling Green. Where's our John Carpenter statue? We need one. That's actually we need a good one. point. Yeah, I agree. They need a John Carpenter statue for sure. Embarrassing. So, John, he lived here until he attended our local college, which is Western Kentucky University, from 1966 to 1968. And another fun fact, Gabe, T-Man, and myself, we all graduated from Western. So, again, that's another reason why we're best friends with John. But in 1968, John left Western to attend film school at USC. And then just 10, ten years later, at the age of 29, he made Halloween. T-Man, what were you doing at age 29? Oh, man. Uh, I don't even remember. Um, usually going out to some dive bar, probably. Um, maybe eating pizza way too late. I don't know. Nothing productive. I'll just say that. Nothing to the John Carpenter <laughs> level. So he really put me to shame there. Well, John, he was the son of Howard Carpenter, a music professor at Western. And this is an important factor for the rest of John's life, especially for us movie fans. His dad had a huge impact on his career as he taught John music and as most fans know John wound up composing the music for most of his films including Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, They Live, etc. And it's amazing to me that he was such a fantastic director 
but also such a talented musician. What do you think about him as a musician? Not a filmmaker, but a, as a musician and the scores for his movies. I think he's brilliant. I mean, I'll just go ahead and say it. Like, was it you that told me that this movie was shot? So they showed this movie without sound or something once, and it was terrible. Is it this movie, Wes? Yes, I actually had a note on that, but you're right. Basically, what had happened is once the movie was completed, he, he showed some uh, like an executive, and they uh, watched the movie, and they just told him that, you know, this isn't very scary. He's like, it's not scary at all. And and John Wynn, he's like, well, I don't have my music in yet. So he puts the music into the movie, and it just it completely changes the movie. For Halloween specifically, John wrote the score in only three days, and he wrote it in an unusual 5-4 time scale. His dad taught him that unusual time scale on a pair of maracas. And so he took that concept and then sat down at the piano and banged out the score for Halloween uh, in three days. Pretty, I mean, pretty crazy. I mean, it's awesome. I told you, it's one of the three songs I can play on piano. You know, Titanic song, I can play that song. The But it's just like two or three notes. It's like, dee, do, do, dee, do, do, dee. but it's awesome. And you knew I was going to throw that in there, Wes. He wouldn't. He's like, you can't <laughs> play piano on the show. So I was like, man, I'm going to sing the John Car- the Halloween song or something. Wes like, no, don't do that. So he, that's going to get edited out, guys. But <laughs> it's genius. Greg, what about you? What do you think of him as a musician? Yeah, man. I, I wish I'd got to see him on tour. Uh, I do own his first album uh, that he released. I say his first album, the uh, first album he released a few years ago, a couple of years ago. Um, he's phenomenal. I mean, it drove every one of his movies. And I think as a maybe a show idea for you guys or even ourselves, this is one of those instances where the music drove the movie. As you mentioned, without the music, this movie wasn't scary. There were executives, there were audiences that were, you know, this isn't a very good movie, but then you add the tension that don't, 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 you know, every, it just spoke. It was like words in the movie. So yeah, I mean, he's, he's a genius. I mean, every one of his songs are so iconic. Like you could pick out not just Halloween. I think Halloween is probably, and I, I dare say this, anybody challenge me on this. I would dare say Halloween is probably the most popular theme song of any movie that's in the world. Like kids of that's never seen the movie knows the Halloween theme song. You take that over pretty much other than Jaws. Okay, my wife's saying Jaws. Okay, she challenged me. I think she got me on that one. <laughs> but, and that was but, a good challenge, too. That, that was, was a that good was challenge. But I, I dare say Halloween is probably, it'll definitely top three. Carpenter created that dude. I mean, that's that's insane to think, but it's not just that one. You got to go into Escape from New York has an amazing soundtrack. I mean, you work your way all the way through his catalog. I mean, it's just hit after hit. Yeah, and I was just gonna add on to that, Greg. I love that. Uh, your challenge didn't last long. First of all, you're like, I hate that when you're like, I challenge anybody. You're like, well, yeah, and my wife later, like, oh, usual. Dang it! Right? <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Oh. <laughs> But it's just, but, a, uh, but no, wait, it was not a song. Jaws is just a dun. That's not the song. That's just that. The rest of that song, nobody knows, right? It's just dun. Right. The theme. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> you're really trying. You're great. He's like, I'm going to get this. I'll try. Um, um, she'll win every time. But I mean, Halloween's the same two notes, too. Uh, yeah. yeah. Just a little faster. So I don't know if you win the challenge. I think I lost. I'll give it up to my wife. She won. (laughs) (laughs) And 
I would just say, Wes, because I love your question about the music. So I think the music really makes the movie. And you can say that a lot of the times. I think the music is one of the most important elements and also one of the most underrated elements of, of a film and a successful yeah. film. Most people don't even realize how important that music is until it's out of a movie. It's almost, it hits you on a subconscious level, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked last episode about Christopher Nolan and his music elements that add to the film and those are just so integral to his films um so i think you're exactly right that without this music halloween would not be successful i think you can just say that straight out without that score it's just not going to be what we know it as and i just want to go back real quick before we move on to the next subject about john carpenter and just how important he is i think to uh gabe west and i because he really is from where we're from, from Bowling Green, from where we have lived for a long time. And, you know, he spoke at my Val Victorian at, or, you know, my graduation at Western Kentucky University. Wes and I, we met him at school several times when he would come back to class. So I think, you know, just for us personally, I think, you know, he just means a lot to us. So it's, it's, this episode, I think is really important to us to kind of just acknowledge and celebrate him as a filmmaker. Don't yeah, absolutely, T Man. No, I'm not. I actually have some more on that uh, here in just a second. So, no, T Man's absolutely right. The last thing I wanted to say about the music itself is that John had the music in his head. Like he could hear what he wanted to do in his head. And Deborah Hill, who wrote the screenplay with John, and they were actually dating and living together at the time when they wrote the screenplay, she said that while he was working on the music that the whole house would just be filled with this eerie music as he was you know practicing going over and trying to figure it out for three days so can you imagine you're just upstairs folding laundry and then you're just hearing that music being played downstairs i just thought that was freaked out i wouldn't be able to do anything yeah that would be pretty creepy and so you know we've talked about jaws we've talked about christopher nolan and we've talked about the Halloween as far as music. But is before we move move on, is there any other uh, movie that you can think of that is really driven by the music? Oh, absolutely. One movie that I brought up and I shared with everybody, Last of the Mohicans. That last sequence when he's running, you know, I told I told Tommy about this. That whole sequence is they're running and, and it builds and it builds and it builds and it score starts hitting. It's amazing. That's good. Yeah, point. and great call. And I would say the other film that I can think of that is the music is so integral. And Greg actually, Jaws is one of them. I think Jaws yeah. is the other. I think the other one is also in the horror genre. I think that's Psycho. I think the musical yeah. score, and of course specifically the slashing sounds from the shower scene, are one of the key elements to that film, and one of the most widely known and recognized key elements. Even people that have never seen Psycho know what that means basically so uh, yeah you know, I, that's another one yeah yeah definitely and even you have to throw in a nod to friday 13th to mancini i mean his yeah. mancini because his his musical score in that one uh and it followed throughout the whole series as well was just that iconic you knew when jason was going to be around and that's what you need in a slasher film especially not necessarily any other genre or any other subgenre. in a slasher you needed that music to kind of let you know Okay, either you're safe right now, or maybe the killer's lurking, or you know, you're dead. So you had to have those moments, <laughs> and that's what John Carpenter brought to the forefront, and everybody kind of I feel like mimicked, and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But anyways, yeah, yeah. Friday 13th, I would throw in. 
Well, T-Man, you led into it, but one of the reasons why, you know, we love John Carpenter, again, is he never forgot his roots. He didn't forget where he came from, specifically the city of Bowling Green. He actually makes mention of the Bowling Green area throughout his filmography, but he really started doing that with Halloween. And the reason why I think that he did that, and I don't know this for a fact, but because he wanted the setting of Halloween to be in a Midwestern town. We know that. And a place where basically this could have happened anywhere type setting. And that's what Green is. You know, we're like 70,000 people here. And uh, it is a small Midwestern town. And um, I, I think he was thinking about Bowling Green whenever he was writing the screenplay. Like, I really and truly believe that. And he mentions Smith's in Halloween, which is only 15 minutes from here. And there's also a line that says, I remember a guy over in Russellville. That's the line in the movie. And Russellville, again, is just 25 minutes from here. While John was attending Western Kentucky University, he had a class in psychology. And they visited a nearby mental hospital, which John, he didn't say which one, but I, I truly believe that it was Rivendell's Children's Hospital. And he said while he was there, he saw a very disturbed 12-year-old boy. And that experience stuck with him all the way through where he's writing the screenplay for Halloween. He gave his thoughts about the boy to um, to to say about Michael Myers. His thoughts about the boy that he saw in the psychology class, he wrote him for Dr. Loomis. And he said, I met this six-year-old child with a blank, pale, emotionless face, the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. What was living behind his eyes were pure evil. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. And while he was writing that line, he was thinking about that boy because that boy scared him in that mental, the children's mental hospital. So I thought that was a really cool little tidbit that, that John shared in one of his interviews. And then after Halloween, he put even more of the Bowling Green influence in his films. There are nine references to this area in The Fog, and in Halloween 2, which he wrote the screenplay for, didn't direct, there are ten references, and they continue throughout the rest of the Halloween franchise. My mom, her family, or our family, is from Scottsville, Kentucky. And when my mom was in high school, they had a little theater that was on the square, which is no longer there, but it showed Halloween 2 in 1981. I was born in 1982. And the group of teenagers she saw the movie with, they all stood up and cheered in the middle of the movie when the line, he's moving north on Scottsville Road, is said. And everybody got up and cheered in the theater. I thought that was, that was pretty cool. So, Timon, you said that you'd met John Carpenter before, and so, Greg, or, or Gabe, has have any of you guys met John? No, I missed out on getting into one of the speeches he gave at Western by, like, uh, five people in line. It was oh. so packed, like, so many people wanted to see him, and it was one of those ones where you had to stand in line, and I got there late, so I didn't get to. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I had the privilege of meeting him in New Jersey, uh, which is kind of the hometown of Deborah Hill. And uh, where Haddonfield actually came from. And um, I was at the convention. That was, I think, his first convention that he was doing. And uh, it was freaking insane. Went with Kenny again, you know, in New Jersey. And, uh, God, the experience was out of this world. Like, it was, 
hours of just waiting outside because you couldn't even get in the convention if you was wanting him. And uh, you literally was wrapped around the building. Everybody else, you just walked right in. Insane. Uh, and such a nice guy. He was so humble. And you could tell he was wanting a cigarette while he's talking to you, but he's such a humble guy. Man. I loved it. <laughs> a notorious chain smoker. Yes. Oh, he's a notorious. You could tell he was wanting it. And it was interesting because I don't know, you guys know because you're not just strictly horror over here. So many of you know about the old TV series, Buck Rogers. And, and you know Aaron over there. You remember Miss Aaron? And she was there. And she was basically like, nobody was coming to see Aaron, okay? They were coming to see John Carpenter. And I felt so bad for her because she was literally the table right beside John Carpenter. So it was like people were using her table to lean up against to wait to see John Carpenter. I was like, (laughs) I felt bad because, you know, at the time, you're kind of sitting there like, okay, I got to count my dollars, make sure, you know, I got enough money to uh, buy whoever I need. And and John Carpenter was not pricey, pricey, but he was pricey. But here I am sitting right in front of Aaron Gray and I'm staring at her while I'm waiting for John Carpenter. I'm feeling like she's got to feel bad. (laughs) She's got to feel bad. I'm like, I'm trying to make small talk. I loved you and Buck Rogers and, (laughs) <laughs> you know money right now and you're awesome and you did good on friday 13th and i'm sorry hey john <laughs> i gotta ask you man people like it in front of the convention no yes sir i gotta ask you man do you have a, a picture of john carpenter tattooed on you i don't i should i mean i love john like that but, you know, <laughs> no i don't i, 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 say, I, like I said i love him like that I love, I love him like, like it. I've got Jamie. I've got the pumpkin from the movie poster, and I got Michael. And yeah, I need him. I need him. I need to put John on there. Maybe I'll find John chain smoking. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when we met John? Because like I was talking about, you know, John came back to Western Kentucky University multiple times when we all went there, um, and he gave many speeches. And like Wes said, I love that John never forgot his roots, never forgot Bowling Green. Because it really did shape him in a lot of ways, and he always talked about that. Uh, but even when we met him, you could tell like he was ready for that next cigarette. And I think even afterwards, I think we remember seeing him out there walking, getting you know, getting his cigarette on. So yeah, yeah that's pretty good. And the last thing I was going to say in this segment is just I was fortunate enough. I've been around him on four different times. He signed a copy of The Fog. He signed a copy of The Thing, and he signed a copy of Halloween for me. So those are. Uh, of my movie collection those are very near and dear to my heart but we we literally got to sit in a small class of about 20 students and watch john basically said okay who wants to be the director who wants to be the actors Mm -hmm. and so he told us like this scene of what everybody was going to do and he literally showed like how he would direct the scenes and how everybody had to hit their marks as they were going it was just so interesting to watch him work and and display his knowledge uh, T-Man and I, we went to a lecture where, you know, he took questions from the audience and stuff like that. That was really cool. And um, there was this, one of the lectures that we went to, this kid asked the rudest question to John. And everybody was kind of like mad at the kid because it was just so rude. He just raised his hand and John called on him and he said that, he said, John, you've had a, You've had a great career, really love your filmography, but what happened with the ward? <laughs> that was his question. <laughs> and everybody was like, that's just so rude. Like, you know, you're, you're talking to a guy that's just put out 
just I mean, he has such a great filmography. And yes, some of his movies missed, but if you have a long enough filmography, that typically happens. Yeah. But John handled it with such class and he just kind of gave the kid just a an answer and basically said that he, you know, he thought it was a he thought they did a good job with it and kind of moved on. But anyway, uh we talked a lot about John, but I that's just something new that I thought we could bring the Halloween audiences because we're literally from the same area that John is from. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Okay, next thing we're going to do, and this will be a little bit of a shorter segment, but I just want to talk a little bit about the evolution of the slasher genre. Because if there was ever a time to talk about slashers as a whole, talking about this movie is the time to do it, because Halloween plays such a pivotal part in cementing the genre as a, as a well-known subgenre of horror, and many can say it may be the most popular genre in all of horror. So when you think of slasher films, most people think of tropes, right? The familiar common tropes that are displayed in the movies. And there are more than five common tropes, but I think there are a big five in slasher movies. So I want to throw those out real quick, and I'm not saying any of you are wrong if you have something different, but I just want to see if you can guess the five tropes that I wrote down here. So just fire away. It's body count, boobs, and blood, buddy. <laughs> that's that's good. T-Man, what do you got? <laughs> the here, one I, thing that came to my mind off is uh, the final girl. Yep, that's the very first one I wrote down. Yep. What about that random police officer going through town? Or the <laughs> what about the uh, nutty oh, scientist guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those are Seriously, those are, guy? Like, I know what he's talking about. I know, you know what he's that talking one, about. That one scientist guy, you know, the, the psychiatrist in this one. I don't know if that's a scientist. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I knew where oh, was going. You knew where I, I was going with it. That's pretty yeah, good. Like science, the trail, the didn't have bunts and burners and schematics and chemicals and stuff out. But I, I know what you, what you meant. Yeah. Like, maybe we change that to the one, one person that knows the true evil that's out there. Yeah. Like, there's always like that one person who like knows the real story and of course nobody believes him until everybody's dead that's like, perfect yeah. yeah and in that last halloween it morphs into jamie lee curtis is that one person that knows the true evil or whatever that last halloween movie that came out <laughs> well you guys are all right and i love greg's response because that was just a beautiful way to sum it up because most <laughs> of the slasher movies had that but th these are the ones that i wrote down all right final girls was the first one you know they're left alone to face the killer at the end Typically a virgin character who refrained from drugs and alcohol or mischief. Then you've got prior evils, which you have a wrongful action that causes severe trauma. And then it's typically reinforced by some type of anniversary or a commemorative event that reactivates the killer, right? Mm -hmm. You've got stalk and murder killers. You have masked killers and you have inventive killing scenes. Those are the like the main tropes that they came to mind. But boobs, blood, and what was the murder? What was the other one? Body count. Body count. Yeah. Yeah. The triple B. Triple B. I, triple I think, B, baby. Forget that. Forget yours. We're using Greg's. <laughs> so the triple B. I love it. <laughs> the triple B. Never want to get triple B'd. Don't, yeah, and women don't get triple B's either. That's mm -hmm. you know, that's another subject. <laughs> different different <laughs> podcast. 
Denver podcast. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> so this is how we know slasher films today, right? With those those types of tropes, and I think we hit on the majority. You know what, what you guys threw out, and but it, it didn't start out this way. Looking back, you have movies like Peeping Tom, T-Man, you've mentioned Psycho already, and then the Italian Giallos. Those were all early influences in creating this genre. And at the time, horror as a genre was moving away from monsters and aliens and the paranormal to more real-life terrors. And where these few films that I mentioned here gave us this type of horror, you know, some life, the early 70s with Last House on the Left, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Black Christmas, that kind of sent the viewer's appetite for these types of horror films, these more set-in-real-life horror films into overdrive. And they clearly paved the way for Halloween and the slasher genre. So then Halloween comes along, and both Deborah Hill and John Carpenter were heavily influenced by Alfred Hitchcock. They have said so themselves, in particular, Psycho. But then also Black Christmas, which they don't talk as much about, but I personally think it's the second best slasher movie of all time. And you can see the influence that Bob Clark's Black Christmas had on Halloween. So what do you guys think? Can you see the influences of those movies from the 60s and 70s in Halloween? No, absolutely. It's, it's definitely paved the way. And uh, Halloween was just able to come at the right time. Like you mentioned, it was coming out of that whole creatures and the whole satanic uh, movies that were coming out in the 70s so it, it hit at the right moment but it certainly absolutely paved the waves the psychos and the black christmas and i agree black christmas is amazing um and john did clearly use some of that um uh, but yeah just i mean halloween just paved the way just because of what was already laid out before it he just capitalized on a different scenario yeah, and I was going to say, and that's a great analysis, Greg, because I was going to say that definitely that those 60s and 70s films led the way for Halloween. And I think also what led the way for Halloween, and then really the slasher genre in general, is the new Hollywood movement uh, mm-hmm. in the 70s, where filmmakers... Uh, really, for the first time ever, had gotten a lot of power away from the studio system. And so they were able to make a lot of the type of films they wanted to do. At the same time, the production code had broken down, meaning that there was no longer a kind of limit on what you could do in your films from a violence, from a sex standpoint. And, of course, the R-rated was then created in the late 60s. And that was that enabled, I think, the horror genre in particular to go in a much more, I don't want to say graphic direction, but it just just a harder R-rated direction that you could not have done in the 60s. Like the slasher genre in particular is very violent. And I think that those two things kind of helped lead the way for the slasher genre to really be what it became. I didn't say anything when you first asked it, Wes, because I don't think any of the movies paved the way as much as Halloween did. I think Halloween paved more ground. I don't know if that's the right term for the slasher genre than than any of those movies. I mean, it progressed it so far. Now there's so many slasher films right after that film. Um, I don't know what you guys think. No, and I agree with what you said, Gabe, earlier when you was mentioning Halloween. And um, I loved what you said there because of the fact that Halloween was able to bring forth a movement that had never been done before. And that is less violence. I mean, they didn't do that. 
But Halloween brought something to the table that none of the other ones had, and that was that music, that was that shock, that was that fear, that was that whole realism, uh, that whole movement. And and I I, I got to agree with you. I mean, when I say paved way, I do see what you're saying. Like Psycho, I should say that John Carpenter used and was paved through Psycho, but I agree that it was after Halloween and the success that the other ones were able to come out so easily because everybody knew now. I mean, the highest gross film at the time, Halloween, let's all, this is easy to make. I mean, we can grab a handheld, a handheld camera if we want to, throw a couple boobies in there and, and a little bit of blood, and we got a movie, and we can make a <laughs> million dollars right on the first night. So, I mean, everybody wanted to do it. It's easy. It's cheap, right? You don't have to have a good script. Don't matter about it. People want bodies. That's all they want. Who can make an inventive kill? I mean, we got a butcher knife. We got a shoot. Everybody knows Friday 13th used every instrument under the sun uh, So <laughs> by the end of their series. Yeah. So, yeah, Halloween, man, paid it. Perfect. So once Halloween was complete, and this kind of goes right along what you, what you guys were talking about, it took on a full-blown grassroots effort to get the film into theaters. One of the distributors had done a favor for MGM, so he asked them for 400 rolls of film to make copies of the movie. Then they went town to town, literally, trying to sell the movie to get visual theaters. And the first time it was showed in a, in a theater where, with a paid audience was in four different theaters in Kansas City. They had sold it to four different theaters. And it got more and more popular until it wound up making $70 million during its in, initial theatrical run. And that was back in the late 70s. So that's a massive hit. And for many years, it was the most successful independent movie of all time and of any genre. And it only had a budget of $325,000. So, Greg, exactly what you were saying, this here is that pivotal moment in the slasher genre. Everybody in the in industry saw how you could take a rather simple concept, put a little money into it, and make a big profit. So what does Hollywood do? They do what they always do. They start ramping up and cranking out a bunch of imitations. And Halloween didn't initially intend uh, to rip off or create tropes or make a subgenre of horror. They were just trying to tell a fun, scary story. And there's another major slasher movie that I personally give a lot of credit for in cementing the slasher genre. And does anybody know what that movie would be? Hmm. Mm. So Greg, Black already Friday. said it. Yeah, it's got to be Friday the 13th, but go ahead. That's right. That's right. Friday the 13th. Sean S. Cunningham, the creator of Friday the 13th, blatantly stated he wanted to rip off Halloween, and he said it, not ashamed to admit it. Mm. He assigned the screenwriter to study Halloween, figure out what they did that worked, and then create a story around the you know, superstitious date of Friday the 13th. So the screenwriter picked up what he thought were the trope, wrote Friday the 13th, thus establishing the rules of the genre we know today. So of all of the Halloween imitations that came out throughout the 80s, what is your guys' personal favorite? Hmm. Out of any movie? Yeah, any of the slashers that came out, you know, after Halloween, like which most of them were pretty much imitating Halloween. What What is your personal favorite? Man, there's too many. Uh... Clearly, Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th Part 3 being my favorite. Um, man, Madman Mars. I love Madman. I think that's a great movie. Uh, it is. I've seen a good, good choice. It's got a great 
song in it as well and it's got the whole campfire tale i'm a sucker for campfire tale stories uh so i mean clearly that one there's too many man there's just you take the worst of the slasher films and they're still the best of the horror movies for me i mean there's not a real bad slasher film man just give me a good kill in it and i'm good I would say, for me personally, you know, I think we were, I was a little too young for that 80s era. Mm-hmm. So for me, my favorite of the slasher genre after Halloween would be when they had that resurgence uh, for Scream. And I know what you did last summer. And those would be the, my personal favorites. And Scream in particular, which I know we're going to get to soon in the, in our in our Halloween month, um, is one of my favorite Halloween, you know, just horror films in general. It was fun. Yeah, um... I would I would have to say Scream too because that's the one that I'm getting ready to talk about. But not to be repetitive, I'll probably go with Nightmare on Elm Street for those 1980 slashers. I don't, does that qualify? I don't know how. What? Yeah, I think so. I, yeah. I mean, I don't think that they would have made Nightmare on Elm Street without all the success of yeah. you know Friday the Thirteenth and Halloween oh. and on and all that. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh. Another one I, I was just thinking about was a uh, minor classic, uh, Halloween Resurrection. Um, I know Wes, <laughs> no, you're a big fan uh, of it. About Halloween it. Resurrection. <laughs> this one, Buster Rhymes fights Michael Myers and beats his ass. So, big fan of that one, too. <laughs> Click. <laughs> we lost Greg. Man, yeah. he was a good guest. Yeah. Greg's yeah, Greg's done with us after that. Peace out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Halloween Resurrection is definitely one of the more controversial uh, Halloween films. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to work it in. I was just waiting, waiting for it. Oh, I know, I it. <laughs> so uh, I, I would say for me, I really like Stage Fright that came out in '87. I think that is a great slasher movie, and not a lot of people have seen that one. So I highly encourage the audience to go check that out. So the last thing that I'm going to leave you with before we actually get into the movie itself is just, and you guys can agree, disagree with this, whatever you want to say. There are four main errors of slashers, errors, I should say. So we have the classic slashers, which are from 1960 to 1993. And sadly enough, that classic error ended with Leprechaun and Jason Goes to Hell. (laughs) (laughs) Then you have... The self-referential from 1994 to 2000. And a lot of people think Scream started that. Scream popularized that. But it was really Newt Nightmare that started that self-referential era. Mm. Then we have the Neo Slashers, and that was from 2000 to 2013. And those are Wrong Turn, High Tension, Wolf Creek, Hatchet, and then all of the remakes of the classics that they threw in there. And then the final one, and it's the era that we're in right now, is the revisionist or the social awareness slasher, which is Halloween 2018, Green Room, It Follows, those types of movies. And so do you guys, do you agree with that? Any additional thoughts? Anything that I left off? Yeah, I would say, just to, just to add one piece of that, I was, I'm surprised that they had that first uh, era so long. I would almost consider it that first era would be like, like 1960s to like the mid 70s um, to when Halloween or Black Christmas. And then that would kick off like the second era, um, because I, I consider those kind of two different eras, in my opinion. I think Halloween and Black Christmas really start kind of the modern slasher era. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with T-Man there on that one. 
Yeah, I think it's kind of resurrected. It, it just well, it didn't even resurrect. It kind of created, to my opinion, what we know as modern slasher. So I would kind of feel that would be the new era right there. I, I got you. Well, you could almost put in like a fifth era and just call it just the 80s of slashers movies. It's just its own <laughs> era, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for sure. I, th- I think. Yeah, I think that's the key error for the slash genre. And it's like it's like the first era kind of like builds up, sets the template, and then that second era with Black Christmas, Halloween, and then all the eighty slashers is like the dominant one that really uh, you know, pushed it to the next uh step there. Yeah. And it fit perfectly too because the eighties was hitting in the hairband era, uh, which I'm a huge fan of the eighties hair bands. And it kind of <laughs> that drove a lot of the slashers, man, because so many soundtracks come out of the eighties with docking and you have bands like that, these hair bands that were putting out their soundtracks for movies, even like Maximum Overdrive, even though that's not a slasher, but just throwing it out there with ACDC, you take that whole genre, that whole eight, it just hit, it was a perfect movement. It was the perfect time, and it died in the, I felt like died in the 80s, uh, going into the 90s, uh, unfortunately, but yeah, it's almost like it was perfect for the Reagan era, like the 80s, of course, yeah. Very well <laughs> yeah. <laughs> era it's like so well the hair band like you're talking about uh greg the uh complete you know the massive cocaine usage throughout hollywood um all sorts of different <laughs> things is, is why uh, <laughs> the genre so well the that really helped it <laughs> it's well no i mean everybody was using cocaine in the 80s it's just kind of that's, that's what they did what are you what saying are you cocaine cane makes you freak out about random creepers stalking people and stabbing them I would say, though, I think my, the reason I brought that up is is I think that a lot of the crazy, like, ideas that came out of the 80s, um, like, you know, just all sorts of different things. And you could say that horror films in general, they, they throw out lots of different things. Um, you know, cocaine usage definitely always played a part in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is just that's a perfect way to end our slasher discussion. So I think we're ready for Halloween and a deep dive into the film. Cocaine's a heck of a drug. So here we go. This is our main event. So let's get in here and audience. What we're going to do is we're going to spoil the absolute crap out of Halloween. So uh, it came out, you know, like 40 some years ago. So if you've not seen Halloween yet, I don't know what you've been doing, but you've got to watch (laughs) Halloween. So if you haven't seen it, pause the episode, go watch it immediately. Come back and then here as we walk through the movie. So my first experience with the film is really the first time that I'd heard about Halloween, period. I was in fifth grade. There were some girls in my class that had a slumber party over the weekend and had actually watched Halloween. And they were talking about it. And I was just so intrigued listening to them talk about the movie. I was eavesdropping on their conversation as I was sitting there at lunch. They were sitting really close to me. And so I just kind of scooted over there, and I just started asking a few questions about the movie. And the more that I learned about what they had seen, the more I wanted to see the movie. 
So Greg, uh, Greg has already told us an awesome story about him seeing Halloween. T-Man Gabe, what, what about you? Do you remember the first time that Halloween came on your radar? Yeah, I do. Actually, Wes, I'm very impressed by your Michael Myers type level of creep in there because I know we're going to get into you know his creeping abilities in the movies. That's pretty impressive. Just listen in, listen to what those movies are. Anyway, that's pretty good. Um, I would say um, similar to yours, but kind of in reverse. I always used to, you know, me and my friends when we were younger in grade school, we would always have sleepovers. And what do you do when you have sleepovers? Is you watch scary movies, and Halloween was one of those that I still remember to this day of watching way too young, obviously. And it was frightening. And it was like, oh, my God, who is this guy? And that kind of kicked off our slasher uh, uh, routine there. We watched a lot of slashers after that. Well, me, I uh, just watched it for the first time right before this podcast. It was pretty good, guys. I don't know. It, I, I'm glad. I, I'm just kidding. I watched it <laughs> Wes was like concerned. He was like, I was like, wait a minute, what? Greg was about to hang up. No, I, it was back in, uh, sometime in the eighties or nineties. Uh, when I got actually sometime in the nineties, when I got back from trick or treating, it was on, on TV. I think I saw the second half. I didn't catch the first half, but I was like, man, I don't know what's going on, but something's wrong with that guy. And, uh, I got really frightened. You know, it was just on TV. I think my parents were watching it. Um, and then I rewatched it again. Um, like older and then i've rewatched it probably 20 times since then the next thing that we're going to do is just just a history of the film but before we do that i've got something for gabe real quick okay go ahead okay. oh it's better than my shark hat <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, happening? <laughs> hear me very well i'm not wearing a michael myers mask yeah so um should i do the episode like this or should i take this thing off well, you sound like I, you're talking in a tunnel. <laughs> I, I can barely it really move. gets me. It really gets me into the mood, though. Like, <laughs> put on that mask right. and see if Ro will make out with you one time. Yeah, I'll put that. Uh, I'll put that on. And hey, <laughs> uh, I guess <laughs> uh, I don't know what I was doing with that. But anyway, I think we're now ready for the Shark Week inspired him. So, uh, as stated. Halloween is a 1978 film directed by John Carpenter, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. It was produced by independent filmmaker Erwin Yablons and financed by Mustafa Akkad, which Halloween fans, of course, will know and recognize. A lot of the time, there's not really an interesting reason to discuss film producers. But in the case of Halloween, both men played a key role. Erwin <clears throat> Leblanc is credited actually for the idea for the film. He wanted the concept about babysitters being stalked and attacked, as he thought a lot of people could identify with that, you know, whether being a babysitter at some point of their life or being a kid and the babysitter coming over to watch you while parents were away. And he also wanted it set on Halloween night. And as Gabe talked about earlier, Erwin, he said that not only was Halloween not used as the title for a film, he could not find it being used in, in a title period, not as even a part of a title of a movie. So he took this idea to John Carpenter, and the reason he picked John is because he was very impressed with Assault on Precinct 13, which came out in 1976, which is a great movie, by the way, if you've never seen it. And John loved the idea, and he agreed on two conditions. He said, first, he would have complete creative control, and second, he would get his name above the title of the movie. 
And so Carpenter told him he could shoot the movie for about $300,000, would do the movie in four weeks, and would write the music. And so Yablon said, if you can do all that for $300,000, you can have any type of control that you want. <laughs> and he did. <clears throat> so finally, Yablon's turned to Mustafa Akkad for financing. John and Yablon's, they met with Akkad in London, flew over to London to meet with him. Mustafa listened to the pitch and asked how much they needed. And he said, when people want a whole lot of money, he gets worried. And when people want a small amount of money, he gets worried. He couldn't understand how they can make a movie worth watching, basically, for only $300,000. And so Yablon's, he picked up on Akkad's hesitation. So he used a salesman trick. He knew that Akkad was a very proud man, and Yablons said to John, well, $300,000 is a lot of money, and it might be more than what Mustafa can handle. And Akkad was kind of taken back by that, and he's like, what do you mean? I, I can handle that, and then agreed to do the movie. So, Greg, what did, what did you think about all this? What did you think about how all of this worked out and, and how the film came together? Yeah, I mean, when you look back now, I mean, of course, we're looking at it 40 years plus now. I mean, it, it blows my mind how that, that they were able to get this off the ground to start off with and to make it happen because literally, I mean, with Erwin Yoblins having what he had, you know, with the babysitter murder kind of deal. And then you got John Carpenter, a nobody at the moment. And then you bring in Deborah Hill and then you bring in a cast that nobody knew other than Donald Placence. It's insane. I mean, if you were to put that all in, in a book and said, okay, this is going to make the highest grossed independent horror film of all time up until just a few years ago, you would have said, you are crazy. But thus we fast forward and it's that lightning in the bottle. Um, no, I, I love, I, when I think back and I look at what Erwin Yoblins had originally done and had given John Carpenter, and then you take Deborah Hill, who they said, you know, Deborah coming from a babysitter experience, put her two cents in, and then John Carpenter doing the whole psychiatric where he had visited that in school you know and they brought it all together it just worked i loved it i thought that malik akkad who or malik <laughs> mustafa akkad uh would later on become more intricate into the series you know after the first one but it's that lightning in a bottle man it was perfect it was like i don't know and it was like they never meant it to be a sequel Wes. this was not meant to be a franchise this was a one out and John was just doing a movie to make some money. And then we see what happened. I mean, it's insane, dude. Insane. I know you talk about a crazy life-changing moment yeah. just after it started really taking off. So, audience, we're going to walk through the movie now. And I'm just going to cover a handful of scenes at a time. And I always like to refer to those as sequences. So I'm going to give the panel here a sequence of scenes. And then the floor is open. And we're just going to talk about whatever they want to talk about what i learned from having kayla from strikes my fancy podcast on our show is that i shouldn't just skip over the credits of a movie so here we go i'm gonna the credits from halloween are actually very famous we get a lit jack-o-lantern we've got the amazing score playing the camera slowly moves towards pumpkin it gets closer and closer and some people say and maybe i'm wrong here that it it reveals like the eye and the in the nose, it forms the shape of a man holding a knife. I looked for that last time. I couldn't really see it. Greg, you you probably know. Is that what it's supposed to be doing, or am I? I think it's what it's supposed to be doing. But I mean, 
to me, I don't know. I mean, this movie's been analyzed and de-analyzed and re-circumcised a billion, zillion times <laughs> and broke down more than you've ever heard a movie broke down. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, it's it might be there. You know, I didn't, I yeah, didn't see Yeah, it. I mean, I'm sure it could be. I mean, there's a lot of hidden things in there. So what do you guys think? What do you think about this iconic title sequence? I'm just glad you guys know. I was going to ask if anybody noticed the pumpkin was getting closer, but you guys went a step <laughs> further than that. Um, no, the I love that they introduce you to the music the whole time. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, that it's going the whole time because from the moment the movie comes on, you're like, oh, wow. And w- without that music, it'd be nothing. But you're just like the whole time, you're getting ready for Halloween. You're getting oh, pumped up what you're getting ready to watch. Yeah, I would agree with that 100% game. Like that music, you know, and Jack Lantern, it's like the perfect template, like the perf- perfect intro for this film. So I think they, they made a great job. And Carpenter, he was supposed to collect $10,000 for his work on this movie. And it was also supposed to be 10% of the, pro- uh, of the profit, which I'm sure when John was going over uh, these stipulations for the movie that he thought, well, you know, he'll probably, it'll probably never turn a profit. He'll probably never see a dime from that. But my understanding, and again, Greg, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I really don't, I, I think that him and the producers, they, John felt like he was owed way more money than him and Deborah ever collected for the movie. And so that was one of the reasons why he did Halloween too, is he felt like that he was able to get back and collect some of that money that had, you know, really been taken from him and, and never paid to him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's known if you watch the commentary, any commentaries of John, he'll mention at the beginning how that they did not make any money on the uh, first one at all. And that's why he did go for the credit. He wanted to have his name above the title. That was one thing that he requested. And he even mentions in one of the commentaries that um, <laughs> it's funny because if you look at it, he gave all these stipulations out right away, and he was a nobody. I mean, he did assault on Precinct 13, uh, but, <laughs> but he's basically a no-known director yeah. throwing out all these stipulations like, okay, Deborah Hill has to be part of the script and has to be part of the production. She had not really done anything. <laughs> I got to have my name above the title. <laughs> and, you know, it's like all these stipulations. He's like, wait a minute, who are you anyways? <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, got it, and, you know, luckily – his career took off from there, in my opinion. Uh, which, honestly, though, I mean, not to throw sight on him, but now he'll make this known. John Carpenter's films never did good in the box office. Like, none of his films were ever box office hits, which was crazy. Uh, but for us cult fans, they were, you know, perfection. So, but anyways, yeah, he did not make a lot of money. Endeavor didn't either, and they, they know that up front. So the opening of Halloween, it starts on Halloween night in 1963. Our setting is Haddonfield, Illinois. We've got two teenagers who have sex and are kind of do. And ultimately, someone (laughs) murders the young woman after her boyfriend leaves. And it's revealed that the killer is a six-year-old boy dressed in a clown outfit named Michael. And he stares at the camera with this blank expression on his face, clutching the knife. So, guys, what I mean, seriously, what an opening for the movie. T-Man nailed it with the credits. It just and Gabe, you know, said it just gets you in the mood for the film. And then we have this great opening. And I just want to stop and talk about it for a minute because not only is it a great opening film, but huge achievement for such a low budget independent film for the way that they were able to shoot it. So, what are your guys' thoughts? 
Well, I got to say, the opening sequence is spectacular. The point of view, the camera angles from him, it really creeps you out, him just being outside the house and walking around. But I'd be amiss if I don't didn't talk about the sex scene. Because <laughs> when I was a kid and you said, do you want to go upstairs? That was code for, you know, you know, get the hoogity boogity on if you were alone with your uh, special other. But they're up there for probably... I don't know, less than a minute from the time Michael Myers takes to walk around the house and start, you know, walking towards the stairs. It's less than a minute and he's putting a shirt on. So I wonder, what did they do? Did like, <laughs> did they take off each other's clothes and like he looked up at her and he goes, cool boobs. And he looked, she looked over at him, um, neato penis. And they were like, okay, well, time to go. <laughs> uh, what happened there? Like, what did they do? They couldn't have had sex. That's not possible in that amount of time. They kissed. That's it. They kiss, Gabe. It is possible to have sex that fast. So, yeah, I love that. I mean, that's (laughs) it is possible, Gabe. Just throwing it out there. Um, But, yeah, that intro scene is fantastic from the POV shot to just how well it's directed. Uh, But I had the same thoughts when I was watching it. I was like, man, that is truly the fastest sex scene of all time. But it doesn't take away from anything because that opening scene is such a killer opening sequence and it really kind of just sets the stage for this movie you know really when i was rewatching, i noticed how great those back-to-back sequences are from the credits to that opening scene it's like man this movie sets it right there sets the bar really high for slasher films mm-hmm. my yeah. favorite part is the eyes the eye holes the camera view from the eye holes as the mask is on that is my by far favorite part of that whole sequence Oh, it's great. It's great that they did that. And it was such a simple thing to do, but it's just so effective in the movie. And you can't, you can tell from the opening scene, Halloween is an extremely well-directed movie. And Carpenter, he was always fascinated with dolly shots. And what they did to shoot the movie is he used a steady cam that they literally strapped to the camera or to the cameraman's chest. And they just walked around with it and used it for the opening scene. And he also made the entire opening look like one continuous shot, though there are two cuts that are in it. And John, you know, he tells you one of them is whenever the mask goes over the camera, they cut. And I can't remember what the other one was, but for a very low budget independent film that they were shooting at such a breakneck speed, it was extremely difficult to pull all of this off as all the timing had to be perfect from shooting outside of the house, you know, for part of it, looking through the windows, everybody was having to hit their marks. And it was just such a difficult scene to shoot, but they did it. And the shot, they said that um, it used one full roll of film for each take that they did. I thought that was an incredible stat there. And then I also love how you have the the camera using the POV, like Gabe was saying. Then we've got Deborah Hill, the writer and producer. She plays Michael in the scene when he's in the house because she had such small hands, you know, as the, as reaching for the knife and then stabbing the girl. That's actually just Deborah Hill, the the writer that they used. I got to ask you guys a question. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Is there a movie and I, this is for all three of you guys, any of you can answer. Is there a movie that does a better job of making, like if you're watching this movie at night, do you not feel like Michael Myers is outside your house during this sequence because of the camera angles and everything? Like oh, yeah. I, I always picture that this is my house and he's outside looking in and creepily breathing and walking around it. 
I don't think another movie does it as good as this movie. Yeah. I, I'll second that. Other than The Strangers, I think The Strangers gives me that feeling as well. But yeah, totally. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a great point. And I like the, of uh, Michael starting out so early being a major creeper. But like, yeah, he's just, you know, looking around those those outside windows. It's, it's so effective. Um, and Wes, I just want to make one other note is that the cinematographer for Halloween is Dean Cundy, who, of course, for our Jurassic Park fans, he actually ended up doing Jurassic Park, Apollo 13, some major films. So, of oh, course, wow. this film had some major talent with it. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a very, you know, very uh, well-known, well-respected cinematographer. But I think his contributions to Halloween are so important because of the handheld camera shot that you're talking about, the POV, and the lighting with Michael Myers. You know, that's another thing that I really, mm-hmm. really realized as rewatching it is how well the lighting is with him when he's in these houses moving around, etc. Yeah, as much as John Carpenter was as important, he was, Dean Cundiff was second important to this movie. The music and the cinematography, outstanding. So up next, it's now 15 years later. We're on October 30th. We meet Dr. Sam Loomis, played by Donald Pleasance and a nurse. We have Michael Myers escaping the local sanitarium and driving off into the night. So what do we think about this escape scene? And it's probably also a good time to talk about the casting of Donald Pleasance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it gave it the point of where we needed to go. I mean, it was 15 years later. Where are they going to make this movie go now? I mean, it's, you know, as point A, B, C, D, and you're trying to get through a movie. Okay, now we got him in a sanitarium. How do we get him out? So clearly, you know, they're going to do a transportation. That, that would make sense. I mean, we're going to transport him. Um, this is where all the controversy starts with Halloween, with the whole, can Michael Myers drive? Who taught Michael Myers how to drive? You know, he hops in a car and he finds his way to Haddonfield. Um, I mean, it's that whole controversy, but I did love the introduction to Donald Places. I did love the, uh, between him and the nurse. I mean, it it was kind of good rapport back and forth. I loved it, man. I thought it was a good setup. I thought it was creepy, man. Uh, the way they set it up, it was so dark. I mean, so dark. I mean, they even made mention, like, they were using a VW headlights to light most of this because they couldn't afford headlights or, you know, big studio lights. So, I mean, everything's really dimly lit, and I, I thought it worked to their advantage. Uh, I love it. I think it's a great setup. I got to say, I love when you first see the asylum, and mm-hmm. you see those people out there just walking around, and they're in their uh hospital gowns and it's just in the middle of the night it's something about it when it cuts to it it's just so creepy it's almost like you're in a haunted house and but it's but it's an actual asylum and i will say mike i never thought of that what you just said greg i didn't like who did teach him to drive like yeah (laughs) where did he get that ridiculously strong palm strength that he has where he can just bust open a window with an open palm slam that's not the way you hit a window you do a closed fist michael how did you do that but no it's it's a great sequence well gabe how they were actually able to pull that off is you can't really you, you can't really tell unless you slow it down but the actor had a like a small little wrench in his hand. So they, he actually busted the window out using that little wrench. Ah, well, that's good to know. Yeah. I was noticing the same things, Greg. I didn't know that was like a controversy or, or a discussion talking point with, with Halloween fans about Michael driving. Cause as soon as he started driving, I was like, man, he's a pretty good driver. He might be better than me. Like, how did he, uh, <laughs> maybe they do that. Like as a course, like, 
I thought maybe they do that, like at the asylum, like, hey, okay, now for this week, we're going to teach you how to drive. (laughs) Which probably isn't a good uh, idea. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely not. There is mention now, I've not read the novel. I've not read the first novel, okay? I do own most of the others. There is mention that there was some talk back in the day of a script or part of the novel or anything or something where his mom had given him some lessons or some weird thing like that. Um, so, yeah, but that was never brought out in the movie itself. That's funny. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. I mean, some people are just natural drivers. Michael is a natural driver. In another world, he probably would have been like a NASCAR driver or something. He's got a GPS. <laughs> but <laughs> also <laughs> gave up. <laughs> The opening scene is really good. Like the the lighting, that's another yes. thing. I know I keep going back to that, but Greg, I think you talked about it with the with the light. Like it's just so well shot, and that sequence when you're coming up, Gabe, like you said, when you see the the everybody in the yard with the white, you know, uh, outfits on, it's just it's scary. It's like, oh, what is going on here? And right away, another thing, real quick, another thing I noticed right away, and I got this sense throughout the movie is Dr. Loomis, man, he is crazy. Like, Dr. <laughs> Loomis is should be in that asylum also. Correct. Like, he should <laughs> be a dope. patient. Now I know why he can't cure Michael, because he's also crazy. He should be a patient, not a doctor. <laughs> How is it his job to track down a serial killer? He's a psychiatrist. I recruit him every day for my work. It's not in your job title to track down serial killers. Like, why is he out hunting for him? No psychiatrist on the planet would be like, you know, he is my responsibility. I uh, better go uh, look for him in the town where he's at. I know where he'll be, the gravestone. How does he know that? He hasn't talked for 15 years or whatever it is. We for sure couldn't be Michael Myers. I'll tell you that because I could not go without talking for 15 years. That's something <laughs> we can't do. No, no. He was just dedicated, man. He was a dedicated psychiatrist, and he yeah. was going to save those people. That That's why he was doing it. But... The producers, they wanted a recognizable name to play the Dr. Loomis character. They first approached Peter Cushing. They then approached Christopher Lee. And Christopher Lee, he literally regretted passing on this role for the rest of his life. And then Yablons, he ultimately recommended Donald Pleasance, although they were for sure that he was going to say no. And it's so funny because John Carpenter was terrified of him on set because he had grown up watching him and and was a fan of him. And Pleasance told him that the only reason that, you know, he was here is because his daughter was a musician and she loved the music that John had did for Assault on Precinct 13. And then they shot all of of Pleasance's scenes in one week because that's all they could afford. And they paid him $40,000. That's awesome. One thing before we move on, we, we talked about how Michael Myers can drive. You know who can't drive? Dr. Loomis. His parking at the asylum is terrible. He like pulls into the center of the street. He parks in a handicap spot in one section of the movie. That man cannot drive. Michael Myers can drive. He should be teaching him. Well, now wait a minute. I thought the nurse was driving. Maybe the nurse was driving. Greg, you know. But to, to Gabe's <laughs> at the beginning, yes. Yeah, see? She well, I, never mind. Never mind. Discard the first section of that. But he does park in a handicap spot. <laughs> Right, though, that's why the nurse was driving because Dr. Loomis is an awful driver. So she was like, Hey, yeah. Dr. Loomis, I'll drive. He's <laughs> one, <of those>, <laughs> one of those older guys you get in your car, you're like, You know what? I'll drive. No big yeah, deal. I got this. <laughs> All right. So next, we meet 
our other key characters to the story. We've got Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. We find out she is babysitting, and they're going to meet little Tommy, and we meet little Tommy Doyle. We find out that Michael Myers has come back to Haddonfield and is inside the Myers house when Laurie goes up to drop off a key because it is for sale. So the house is all run down and in age and everything. So here again, we meet Laurie. We find out Michael Myers is back. So what's your first impressions of Jamie Lee Curse as Laurie and your thoughts on just the overall performance by Jamie Lee in the movie? She's spectacular. Does anybody... I didn't know before watching this movie, like again, a little bit older, that Jamie Lee was so attractive in this. I think she looks really good in this. Obviously, Greg does. He got the tattoo. Oh yeah. I don't have. <laughs> I don't have this, but I mean, yeah. she was a she was a good looking younger actress. Mm-hmm. And I think she's spectacular in the film. Yeah. By the way, she is. You can tell. You talk star making performances. Tommy talks it all the time. This is a star-making performance. There are some bad actors and actresses in this film, but she stands out. She's spectacular the entire film. Yeah, and it's funny because she made mention that uh, in one of the commentaries that she was so afraid that they were going to fire her because she felt like she was not doing a very good job. And uh, she was literally like, and John Carpenter called her one night, first night, and she was scared. She's like, I'm done. I'm like, I'm, they're firing me from this job. And... It's just the way they shot this film was so out of sequence, so different because the opening sequence that we saw with the house was the last shot of the film uh, as far as filming. So they said, made mention that, you know, John Carpenter had to give her cues like, okay, you need to act this level of scared or you need to be this level because they did shoot it so out of sequence, which should make people understand how much of a good actress Jamie Lee really was at such an early age because of the cues that she was having to pick up off of. But that opening sequence with that, as far as the house, you finally get to see the back of the shape, uh, Michael Myers's head. It's just so freaking awesome. The creepiness of the house, that house was alive itself, man. Uh, Deborah Hill had mentioned that it looked like the reason they loved that house was because it looked like a face, like, you had eyes and almost like a, a face. And uh, that's why they chose that house and the decrepitness of it. Uh, it's just, it, it was perfect, man. It set the mood once again, just like the opening of the hospital scene. and diff- it, it was perfect. It was, it was just, I don't know, just perfect, man. What I love about Jamie Lee Curtis in this film, a couple of things, is she is very relatable. She's just a very normal, like, teenage girl that you end up automatically rooting for right off the bat. I think that's very important in this film. It's key, it's kind of one of its key ingredients is that she's such a likable lead person. And the other thing I love about her casting is, of course, she comes from Hollywood royalty. I mean, her father is Tony Curtis. Her mom is Janet Lee. And for, of course, our film fans out there, Janet Lee was the star of Psycho. And so I love that connection there where you have the the lead character's mother was the lead character in psycho so just there's just like that transfer of generational like saying like a handoff almost of like okay here's this new generation taking the lead in these films yeah i actually that's exactly what i was going to mention is that she was the daughter of janet lee and deborah hill and john they both like psycho we've already talked about that and were influenced by it but although deborah she really wanted jamie lee john's first choice was the daughter in lassie and i meant to look that actress up and I forgot to do it, but that was his, that was his first choice. And 
Yavlons, he sided with Deborah Hill because he loved that promotional tie-in, you know, thinking as a producer uh, with, with Psycho. And then to the actual scene itself, that simple act where she's dropping the key off at the Myers house that catches Michael's attention and Lori basically becomes his obsession after that. And in many cases, it's these simple acts that are what catches real serial killers attention. So I thought that brought even more realism, realism to the movie, you know, for Lori to become Michael's obsession because of that. All right, so up next, we've got Dr. Loomis. He's warning people about Michael, that he's going to go back to Haddonfield. We have Laurie. She's sitting in class. She sees Michael watching her from across the street. And then we have, you know, little Tommy. He's coming out of the uh, school being bullied, and one of the bullies comes face-to-face with Michael. These are more or less just a few story filler scenes here, but in that process, they were were able to create the iconic scene of Lori in class and Michael watching her. So what are your thoughts on just these handful of scenes? Well, the main thing that sticks out on that is, do you guys remember getting out of school in like the 80s and the 90s and what it was like on Halloween and how pumped you were? Like, I love that whole sequence of them getting out of school and just running because they know it's Halloween. What's that kid doing carrying his pumpkin around? Nobody carried their pumpkin to school. Why is he carrying a pumpkin? Oh. And it's huge. Why it's is it so enormous. big? Has he been carrying that all day? <laughs> like, well, yeah, does he go class to class? I know it's the same thing, Gabe. Gabe, obviously, we spend too much time together because we have the same exact notes for everything. Um, <laughs> uh, that pumpkin is so large. Does he have it in his locker? Does he have it by his desk? Is he, like, carrying it around in between the hallways? <laughs> Uh, I don't know, but I want to know more about that pumpkin. (laughs) (laughs) And he gets it broken. I mean, he carried it all day long, and then those bullies break his pumpkin. It's so frustrating. Also, Uh, Jamie Jamie Lee Curtis, back-of-the-class sitter. She's not a sidewalk singer, but she is a back-of-the-class sitter, you know. And she gets caught staring out the window, just like everyone else. Yep. We all did that. She had the answer, though, Gabe. She did. When the teacher called on her, she, she had it. A little ironic they're talking about fate in that in that class and then the whole movie is about fate uh, i don't know I, yeah could could be you know because it's cinematic foreshadowing could be but the uh the classroom scene th- i mean this is great and it's very creepy and just as she's about you know you know, look out she gets called on by the teacher like she said and then whenever she looks back again he's gone you know, the beginning of the movie, it's shot with a lot of very wide-angle shots, if you notice. And everything is very distant. It's very far away. And if you, as the film progresses, it coincides with how far Michael is away. Like, he's watching from a distance. And so the shots are very distant. But as the movie progresses and Michael gets closer to our characters, the shots, they tighten up. They get closer. And for me, I thought that was like very fascinating stuff because it's not just about what you're getting on camera or what is written in the screenplay, but it's how the director is helping, you know, to tell the story with the choice of shots and angles. I don't know what you guys think about that. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, I love that analysis. And I never thought about it until you just mentioned it, Wes, but it's so true. 
And I love those early sequences of this film. I forgot how well developed they were and how well shot they were. And that aspect of the long camera and the long angles uh, really sets the stage and really builds builds up the tension, I think. And also, Michael, great A creeper right away. You know, he's been in that asylum a <laughs> long time, so we weren't sure how Went well he could school. creep. But right off the bat, he gets out, he's creeping, he can disappear like that. I love it. <laughs> yeah, he go. I mean, he goes to creeper level 100, goes straight to a school. But that sequence where that kid runs into him and that look on the kid's face, that's one of the little subtleties in the movie that's just spectacular because that kid just instantly freaks out and uh, runs away. So, but man, he's a level creep, creeper level 100 right off the get go. You're right, T Man. And Greg, you're such a big slasher fan, but you know, these types of movies are, are typically not directed by such a visual storyteller. You know, they basically just hired what we refer to sometimes as shooters, you know, people that just go out and shoot the footage that are not telling the story with the camera. And, you know, but in the hands of such a supremely talented filmmaker like John Carpenter, it just adds element to Halloween that none of the other slasher films really have. No, I totally agree with you. It's all about angles. It's all about having the perfect storm here. And that was having the cinematographers and the different things they had. It just, everything was perfect. And you're right. Slasher movies typically didn't have what they had in such a low budget film. So we're back to Dr. Loomis. He's on his way to Haddonfield. Haddonfield. He finds evidence that Michael is also on his way. Now the audience, we know he's already there, but you know, the characters that are hot on his trail are just finding some of this stuff out. And so the evidence we find is in the form of a matchbook that's the rabbit in the red lounge. Lori's two friends, Linda and Annie, who is the, the, the sheriff's daughter, and they talk about their plans for the evening, and then unknowingly to them, they have an uh, encounter, sorry, I can't talk for some reason, with Michael via his car. So we've got all this stuff going on. And so this scene is important for future slasher tropes, and it's one that Victor Miller, the writer of Friday the 13th, paid close attention to because, you know, Lori, being the conservative, you know, do the right thing girl, while her friends are looking to kind of party and have a good time and drink and have sex that night, you know, that's not really what Lori's up to. But anyway, what do you guys think about, like, the, the dynamic here with Lori and her two friends? Well, I got to say, the, the line that, uh, that that one lady says, I don't know, is her name Lori? I, I don't remember what her name was. It's when she yells at Michael Myers driving by and she goes, speed kills. Annie. <laughs> Annie, That's yeah. Annie. Okay, sorry. I, I didn't memorize their names, but speed kills. <laughs> like, that, that is the worst insult ever. Like, I wouldn't stop. I just keep driving. <laughs> so true. No, but those, those sequences are so well done, and I kind of put them together with the previous sequence, Wes, is just like how well it sets up the rest of the film. And I also, another thing about Michael Myers, great A creeper, hell of a hide-and-go-seek fan. One of the best. <laughs> like, yeah. like, his abilities to just pop in and out and disappear man he, he could never he's probably like he's probably never been beat at that game i just love the the fall like i don't just the atmosphere that 
John Carpenter goes with in these sequences where they're walking along, like a fall, the emptiness of the streets. It's just very evocative. It's just very creepy, and it just it makes you uneasy every time I watch it. And then, of course, you got Michael Myers, you know, driving right behind them, extremely slow. You notice that, like, he's right on their tailgate. I don't know. Just the whole sequence is just so well done. Yeah. Well, when Halloween was greenlit, John turned, like we've talked about, to to Deborah Hill, and they actually wrote Assault on Precinct 13 together, and they wrote it in, like, you know, the whole screenplay in about three weeks. I'm talking about Halloween, sorry. But anyway— Deborah, she wrote the dialogue for the girl. So I thought that was that was pretty cool. And then PJ Souls, who plays Linda, what well, she's totally the comic relief for, for the film, right? Mm-hmm. And she was just messing around with John Carpenter by saying totally a lot because she wanted to see if he would step in and stop her, but he didn't. And and now it's become, you know, you know, very famous and it's what she's known for. And then uh, PJ, she was also in Carrie, and that was her first role. And John and Deborah, they wrote the Linda part specifically for her in hopes that she would, you know, sign on and audition for the role. And another kind of fun fact about PJ Souls is she was dating Dennis Quaid at the time, and they tried to recruit Dennis Quaid, I, Greg, I think, to play Bob's role in the movie, yeah. but he was yeah, he was Linda tied was, up. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been awesome. I I could have kind of saw that, but you know, it, it worked out the way it did. Yeah, it worked out to to perfection, right, Greg? Yes, perfection. <laughs> That's what Team Man and Gay has got to learn that perfection. You know, they're they're picking at some of the the little details that are out there, but it, but on. it's okay. It's perfect. Hold on, you, one thing the audience needs to know is when I talked about my second to favorite movie, I picked at it, Wes. Picking at it you, means you, I you, well, it means I love it. This is absolute. Do not misunderstand my picking at this movie for the fact that I don't recognize its perfection. Like it is the best slasher movie, and I had to pick a different movie for my main movie. So don't misunderstand me, audience. No, I was just messing with you yeah. guys. This is what we do at Real Talk. We have a good time with some yeah. of the the flaws with the movie, but it's all in all in good fun because we we love it. All in good love, exactly. And, you know, people, that's what Gabe and I are. We're pickers. You know, other people would call us <laughs> bastards. But, you know, <laughs> we are. <laughs> oh, boy. Craig's like, what I get myself into tonight? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, up next, we get more of the Michael Myers stalking scenes. You know, he's watching the girls walk from behind a row of bushes he watches Lori from her neighbor's backyard in a row of a clothesline. Plus, we get to meet Sheriff Brackett, who drops the famous line. It's Halloween. Everybody's entitled to one good scare, which I freaking love that line. And the girls finalize their evening plans. So, Greg, what do you what do you think here? What do you think about, you know, the additional stocking and bringing in a few additional characters? No, I mean, they needed that. That was something that had to happen and uh, to keep the movie going and the story plot going. So uh, it, it was perfect. I mean, it was all the cast in this one I thought was well done. Some a little better than others, but I did like how they brought in and introduced characters into the story. So, yeah. Hey, Wes, I, I think this is a good little scene in this sequence is when uh, they meet the sheriff, right? Isn't that this part of that? Yeah. Where they mm-hmm, roll up mm-hmm. on the hardware store? I think that's a really good little sequence because 
as Greg, like you're saying, it brings in some additional characters and it just makes you care more for the characters, I think, for some reason, those daughters, because, you know, you meet the dad, he's a nice guy, you kind of like him automatically, and it just it just brings some realistic uh, elements to it. So I think th- those sequences are really needed in the film to make you care about them. Well, the name Michael Myers, it actually came from the distributor of Assault on Precinct 13, and a man by the name of Michael Myers. And, you know, John's reputation really began with this movie, and he felt like, you know, or I'm sorry, it really began with Assault on Precinct 13, and he felt like he owed the guy like a nod and a tribute. And so what an ultimate nod that wound up being. It Now, Michael Myers is the most famous horror character, uh, I would say, Probably Norman Bates, the shark in Jaws, maybe Hannibal Lecter. I mean, you know, he, he's up there. What's crazy is that, you know, Nick Castle, who plays Michael Myers in the movie, he just asked if he could, you know, stick around the set to learn basically how to make a movie. And John said, well, if you're going to be around here, because everybody on the set was just friends and family. A lot of them weren't being paid. You know, they're just working hard to make the movie. And so... John was like, yeah, Nick, you're going to hang around here. We're going to put you to work. And so he put him, you know, as the killer. And the performance that Nick Castle turns in, you know, it has been tried many times to replicate. And no one has ever been able to to replicate just the way that he kind of glides around and is just his subtle movements of the turning of the head and different things. So I just, it's crazy, you know, there's, he doesn't say a word the whole movie you don't even really see Nick Castle because I think it's another character there at the end that during the unmasking, but just the performance behind the mask is just, it's just perfect. Yeah, Can I, would... I say something real quick? There's another thing about this movie that it does. That's so good that no other movie does. Um, it introduces the spirit of the season or the Halloween itself. You get to see trick or treating. You get to see people on the side of the road. You see the kids leaving the school. There's a jack-o'-lantern at the beginning. So while they're enduring you to the characters, they're simultaneously like enduring all of us because of the uh, they're putting us. It's putting us in the Halloween season. It's connecting to every single one of us because it's connecting us to that holiday and no other movie. And it's named Halloween and, and no other movie does it as good as it that I can think of. So that's something else that it's enduring us to enduring this section, too, I think. You know, and what you're seeing a lot from these past few scenes, and now Gabe, you and T-Man have both mentioned it, uh, just the setting of the movie. And again, it's a regular Midwestern town, but it was actually filmed in Southern California. And they did their best to shoot around palm trees, though if you catch it right, there are actually a few palm trees still in the movie. You know, most only notice that type of thing if you've seen the movie as many times as Greg and I have. But uh, plus all the leaves that are in the movie, they just had to reuse those leaves over and over. They would literally use them in the scene. They would rake them back up. Then they would use them again and then rake them back up. And then plus they had an extremely hard time finding pumpkins because, Greg, I believe that the movie was shot in the springtime. Yeah, it was uh, filmed in March. So there you go. It just it's So both of you guys picked up watching the movie again just how much of that Halloween, that fall setting – and then it was shot in March. It was shot in Southern California. And it, it's just great. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I love that, Wes. I love that 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 fact and great about the March aspect of it. And that's really that movie magic element because you wouldn't know it looking at it, watching it. It truly feels like, like you said, Wes, a Midwestern town in the fall season. And I think that's one of its strongest elements in these beginning sequences. So, that, I mean, just that's awesome. All right. Next up, Dr. Loomis and a graveyard keeper visit Judith Myers' grave, who was the sister that Michael has killed at the beginning of the movie. Dr. Loomis then goes to visit Sheriff Brackett. Simultaneously, we've got Annie and Laurie driving around smoking a joint. And again, your final girls typically don't do drugs or anything, but the little thing that they added, which I thought was funny, is that Laurie is coughing the whole time and cannot you know, handle smoking the, the joint. Uh, they then have a brief encounter with uh, Annie's dad, Sheriff Brackett. This is right before Dr. Loomis arrives. The girls then head to their babysitting destinations. You've got Laurie at the Doyle house, and then Annie is across the street at the Wallace house to watch Lindsay, and Michael is right behind them. So we're really starting to get into the heart of the movie now. You know, the setup is basically complete. So is there anything else about the movie as a whole that is sticking out to you so far? Is there anything more 70s than driving around, listening to some Blue Oyster Cult, smoking a doobie? I mean, <laughs> what is a great point. Do they have anything better? I mean, does, uh, the only thing this movie could have used in its soundtrack is maybe a little more cowbell. But um, no, it's it, it he truly the worst detective ever. You know, if you roll down your window after smoking a joint in your car for however long they were doing it, and he can't detect the, the smell of pot, I have no idea how to help him. But He's the um, sheriff. He's the sheriff, not a detective. Oh, sheriff okay. Brackett. There you go. <laughs> he, he still should have known, but uh, I love the sequence. It, it, it puts you in the 70s. That's how they do it. Greg, what about you? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I love that whole whole sequence there even though it was kind of weird um but yeah you see the tension starting to build now you you know you like you said you've already set the characters and now you're going to start building from there and i thought they were moving along really well with it you know now we know why uh he become you know how he got the mask where he got the butcher knife where he got all these things so now we know what's going on uh why he's behind him in a car and had robbed the store i don't know how all that sequence happened but anyways <laughs> Team, anything to add here? No, I just kind of what I was stating earlier about that sequence where you meet the sheriff. I think it's just a great little add-in sequence. At the same time, serving dual purposes, giving you an explanation about you know Michael getting that equipment, getting the knife, but also just endearing the audience to these characters a little bit more, which I really enjoyed. And I think that's an underrated aspect of Halloween is the characters. A lot of slasher films in general, especially as you got into the '80s, didn't develop the characters as well. They were usually all like, you know, partying college students that got killed very easily. This one, I just feels like it has broader characters. You got the Dr. Mm -hmm. Loomis, the sheriff, and then the even the children. You know, these slasher films usually didn't have little small children in it like, mm -hmm. like they do in this one. So it's just another, you know, great element to the film. They mentioned that he takes a rope. Does he use the rope? Does the rope the does he use the rope when he chokes the girl from behind? I, I don't I don't know. Does he use the rope at all? I don't, don't know they, they even put that in there. They never really used the rope that I know of anywhere in the movie. But doesn't yeah. he say he takes the rope from the, the shop? Isn't that one of the items that he stole? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Just wondering. He was planning a, on using it later, but he never got to it. Yeah. There you go. Good. That's a good explanation. But, T-Man, I'm glad you brought up the characters of the movie because 
the characters of the movie, they are plagued with the idea that it's Halloween time and it's the season for tricks and mischief. So think about that for a minute. We've got Lori thinks somebody is stalking her, but it's dismissed by her friends. The headstone at the graveyard is blamed on kids. The mask, the rope, the knives that are stolen from the, the hardware store is blamed on the kids. Even Lori herself in an upcoming scene tells Tommy that Halloween night is a night when people play tricks on each other, you know, trying to calm him down where he has just seen, you know, this scary looking person across the street from the house. The very real threat that has come to this little town of Haddonfield, the only one that's sure of it is Dr. Loomis, but he can't get people to take the situation Seriously. And I think that this was also very brilliant storytelling since they were using Halloween as the theme of a movie. And it's that theme that allows Michael to walk around with a mask on and not stick out or really cause much of an alarm. And I just loved that aspect of the writing. It's really clever. And they do it a little bit further in the graveyard scene where that other guy with the Dr. Loomis is telling the story about the guy who cut up his whole family with a hacksaw. They're just like putting you in like this could happen. This There's one of these in every town. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, geez. Yeah. And they even do it, Wes, that's a great call because they do it later. They do it through the whole film, even at the towards the end, uh, after the characters are having sex and the, and the guy puts on the ghost outfit. Mm-hmm. And she's like, come on, quit joking around. It's like they keep continuously doing that. So I love that. But hey, Michael's a jokester, man. He loves playing these pranks on people, you know, to him, you know, he loves uh, hide and go seek, uh, killing people to him. They're all just, it's all jokes. And team, I can't believe that I missed that in some of my bullet points because you're right. Again, she, she thinks it's just a trick, you know, Michael's put the glasses on and we'll talk about that in a second. But again, I should have listed that because that's just another element of these people. Just, these are just Halloween tricks. These are Halloween pranks going on and they're missed antics. You know, they're missing this very real threat that's right in front of them. Okay, so next up, we've got a lot of stuff happening at the same time. Dr. Loomis and Sheriff Brackett search the Myers house and find find that Michael are evidence of something that has been there in the house. Michael is now stalking Annie. Annie brings Lindsay over to the Doyle house for Lori to watch her so she can go out with her boyfriend. Lori is babysitting now both kids. Annie gets killed in her car as Michael is waiting in the back seat for her, and Tommy sees Michael carrying Annie's body, which I had just talked about. So there is all kinds of stuff going on here. We've got a lot to unpack in these scenes. So, Greg, what stands out to you in this handful of scenes? Man, I mean, that was so integral. I think the the one that really stands out to me was the whole uh, body carrying of Annie and the seeing through the window, little Tommy Doyle, you know, the whole boogeyman speech, all these things. I think it really set the shape up now. I mean, now we know he is there. He is stalking. He is a murderer. Uh, he's, he's relentless. And it was the shadowing of the cinematography from Dean Cundiff. It was everything. That whole sequence to me stood out more than anything. Um, you know, the kill itself, you know, was it the best kill? No. I think it was kind of neat the way they did it. Uh, I think a little PG, of course. Uh, but still, I loved it. I loved it. But no, to me, it was that whole carrying of the body inside the house. And we knew right then 
okay, it's on. I mean, we're we're starting to see what's fixing to happen, and it's not going to be good for these ladies. Yeah, Greg, just to add on to that, I think you're exactly right. Those handful of sequences, the the carrying the body out with Tommy looking on, I think is is so well done. It's kind of the key to that sequence because it like you're Tommy is like in that sequence is like the audience surrogate and kind of looking out the windows, looking across the street. And then you're like, whoa, is that a dead body? And it's kind of like, and that's another thing that I think Halloween does really well is it's like Michael is invading the suburbs and he's like, a, there's something just not right about him being there. And that image of him carrying the body out is so evocative and it's so like spine tingling. Cause it's like, this is suburbia. This is supposed to be like peaceful and where nothing bad happens. And you got Michael carrying that body out and it's just, it's so unnerving. And I love that, that little sequence. I will say this, Greg, um, you said that it's not the best kill scene and, and, and I agree with you. It's not, but in some ways it is because one thing I noticed about this scene she has to go out to the garage. She goes back into the house. There's multiple times when you feel like he's watched. It builds for so long before she gets killed. <laughs> yeah. She gets stuck in the window. Who gets stuck in a window? Like getting outside the window. She should have fallen out. But, I mean, there's so much that builds. Like you're so on the edge of your seat because you're like, when is this girl going to get killed already? And then, bam, it happens when she gets back in the car. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you get that plus. <laughs> yeah, plus another thing we learned about Michael, not a dog lover not gonna have dogs yeah there i mean this whole scene is just are all this handful of scenes here there's just a very cat and mouse approach you know by michael it's michael playing with his victims yeah. before he kills them and, and this is what sets the suspense up for the film of course along with the music and gabe you alluded to it it's a very long build-up to annie's death i mean he is just watching her she's in the kitchen she's walking back and forth across the street dropping the kid off he she he's he's messing with her while she's out in the laundry room which is in the i guess that garage area you know it's just it's crazy all that uh and you could just keep seeing him standing there behind her and i just i love it this is what makes this type of stuff makes halloween so special is just this kind of stalk and kill that he does um and then we've also got the breathing behind the mask here. You know, that sound effect. You can just hear him breathing as, as he's watching her. And one of the best shots of the, of the entire movie is, you know, when Tommy is looking out the window and he sees the shape just standing in front of the house across the street. It's yeah. before he kills Annie, before he really starts stalking. He's just like watching from across the street. It's scary. It's beautifully dark uh, it's dark it's beautiful the way that it's shot and you know michael's outline there is just so freaky and then the last thing that i had on on this handful is is john obviously he purposefully wanted the movie to be scary but with very little gore he wasn't really into the gore aspect of it and so what he wanted he always wanted as a horror fan for people to show very little of the monster because he felt like it built a lot of tension. And that's what you hear you, or what you see here. You just see these little glimpses, you know, of Michael, anything else on this handful of scenes? No, I think you're right. Wes, about that one shot about Michael, just looking across the street, another just evocative image that's just kind of burned into your mind. Every time I watch it, it's like, Oh, that, that is just a, such a scary image. Cause you know, we can all look back in our childhood or whatever and put ourselves in Tommy's shoes. And if you would have saw that, I mean, it would have been horrifying. 
So it's such a well done sequence. I would not have gone back to the couch and sat down. I for sure wouldn't. I would have screamed. I would have been upstairs. Yeah. I've been in my closet underneath clothes. Don't judge me. Um, but it's but it's that stalking. I mean, no movie does that stalking as good as this movie. It is so creepy. I feel like I'm being stalked. <laughs> Another thing, Les, real quick, is the movie that Tommy's watching is the thing from another mm-hmm. is thing from another planet, and of course. For all our film fans out there, once again, John Carpenter remakes that as the thing just a few years later. So I love those little kind of uh, just notes that he puts in there for film fans to really take note of. Yeah, totally. Literally. Uh, Yeah, totally. There you go, Greg. (laughs) I love a good totally. So next up, Sheriff Brackett is losing his patience with Loomis as there's really nothing happening that they know of. Back at the Wallace house, Linda and her boyfriend Bob show up to borrow a room. And they find out that neither Annie or Lindsay are there. So they head upstairs to have sex. Lori now has the kids calm down as they're carving out pump or they're carving pumpkins and watching a movie. And meanwhile, Bob and Linda have finished up and Linda wants a beer. So Bob heads downstairs only to be killed by Michael. Michael then heads back to the room where Linda is waiting on Bob. T-Man, as you mentioned, he's dressed as a ghost with Bob's glasses on, and he strangles Linda to death with the phone cord while she's actually on the phone with Lori. And then Lori, suspecting something strange is going on at the house across the street, at the Wallace's house, she goes to check on Lindsay and Tommy, who are now sound asleep. So that's where I'll end this handful of sequences here. Things are really escalating now. There's a lot going on. We get a very iconic death scenes of both Bob and Linda here. What do you guys think about these iconic scenes? Greg, let's start with you. Yeah, I love uh, I love the kill of, of PJ Soul's character. I love how it was just kind of... I mean, Pearl even mentioned to me about the sheet. Why the sheet? Why did he have the ghost sheet on? You know, why didn't he just come in? He already had a mask on. And I, I honestly don't know the reason behind that, except Deborah Hill decided to do that. But um, I don't know, man. I love the gargling. Like when she's dying, she's an <laughs> and she said that <laughs> she drug that out as long as she could because that was her last scene and she knew it was going to be her last scene. So you'll hear her go on and on and on with her death gargle. Uh, <laughs> but no, I love that scene. And I love just all these kills that's happening now in the house. I love how... You know, Michael's going through them one by one and how he's setting up uh, what will soon be Lori's uh, reveal where she'll finally figure out what's going on. I just I love how they set that thing up and unbeknownst to any of them. I mean, like one by one, like Annie's dead. Now Lori's dead. Bob's dead. You know, all these are dead and you don't know it. You know, each one of them don't know it. They're they're clueless that the other one has passed. So. It's it's just a great setup, man. It's it's building the tensions really set up. The music's really blaring now, as far as John Carpenter bringing in a lot of of motion with the music, and now you're really seeing the shape take take form. Now we're really seeing who he is. That he's not a shadow. Now he's a force, and now he's he's taking action. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's a great point. Get- Greg, about just how much is going on. I, that's another thing I noticed rewatching it is like in this sequence, it's like full on. Like John Carpenter is really bringing everything to the table here with all the cross cutting between the plots, the death sequences of those. And it's just so well done. Another just amazing job. And that's what Halloween has 
above almost any other horror film or slasher film is just the directorial talent of John Carpenter. And then just a couple notes real quick. It's first, I think great Gabe, you already mentioned it. Uh, Michael is extremely strong. Like he just picks that guy up with his one hand, arm. I mean, I couldn't pick that guy up with both of my arms. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then the other thing is once again, Dr. Loomis and that sheriff, some really shoddy police work, because Michael's car was literally right across the street from them. <laughs> How did it's they really even see shoddy. that? Really shoddy. Like, Good Dr. Point. Loomis is there all night. And then finally he's like, oh, wait a minute. There is his car. I've been looking everywhere for that thing. He's too busy creeping <laughs> out kids that are approaching the, the old uh, house. He's saying those voices or whatever. Oh, my God. I, that was such a great little sequence. What does he say to those kids? God, it's something get your like, ass out of here. Hey, now, he says the kid's hey, name, Bobby, right, Greg? Get that your house? ass away from there. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Yeah, that's it. I, I did not remember that at all. I love. I cracked out loud laughing when he said that. I loved it. And then he scares himself by well, Sheriff Brackett scares him. It's awesome. Yes. Yeah, it was back to back. You're right. That's a great point. Back to back scares. They break all the horror movie rules in this section, but these the this movie made the horror movie rules. But in Scream <laughs> later on, they go on to like say you don't say I'll be right back. That guy says I'll be right back. Of course, he gets stabbed to a cabinet. You yeah. know they the girls has has sex. You know they're both drinking. Of course, they're all gonna die. They're not doing <laughs> the right stuff. If they just watched Scream, well, they couldn't. You know if they went forward in time. But, I mean, this movie made the horror movie rules. That's another, you know, this did, did so much for horror movies. So, um, but no, I love all the sequences. The, the kill's awesome where he's hanging from the, you can see just his feet twitching. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's awesome. And then you get those twitches of the head that I was talking about that Nick Castle was able to do. And it was just, and, yeah. and Deborah Hill said it, it's like a, it was like a dog, you know, looking at something, trying to figure out what it's done, you know. So the mask itself, we hadn't really talked about it, but, it, you know, it was supposed to be a blank face. You know, no money to make the mask. It was inspired by Eyes Without a Face, which is a French film. And so they got this William Shatner mask and they altered it just a little bit. And they knew once it was done that it was it was special because it was so eerie. And Greg, I believe the other mask that they they were looking at was uh, a clown mask. I think is the other one that they had come down to. Right. But anyway, that's that's where they they decided to paint it white again. It was just inspired by eyes without a face. Hmm. And then Michael Myers is often referred to as the shape. You know, it was like that in the screenplay, and people often refer to him as that. And it's. He was called in the original screenplay, but he was also called the Boogeyman. Yep. Because, plus, you have this story arc of him just being pure evil in the movie. So what the movie is doing is it's setting up Michael Myers as something that's not completely human. So, Gabe, you were talking about, you made a funny analogy about him being the musician, uh, the magician and stuff like that. But what it's doing is it's just setting him up that he's not completely human he's something more and you can't argue with him you can't debate him he does not have any reason it's just a new type of monster or you could just say it's just death itself and so i love that aspect of the film mm -hmm. yeah it was I mentioned think... that uh in the novel that they did take it a little more further into the supernatural realm uh he was more and john carpenter will make mention of it in the commentaries that he was human slash supernatural so 
you know, the elements of the driving the car, all these things were more along the lines of the supernatural side of things. Sorry, fans, if that pisses you off, but yeah, he, <laughs> he was a little more than human. I would be amiss if I, if, if I didn't talk about it. I don't think it would be as good if he did talk. Do you guys think it would be better if the villain talked or didn't talk? Uh, yeah. No, it, it's perfect how, how it was. Again, you know, you just have, again, it's it's like I was just talking about this emotionless, just, it's, yeah. he's just a machine. He is just pure evil. And so, uh, to tell you, the, tell you the, the truth, and Greg, I don't know how you feel about this, but I really, even after all these years and it being one of my all-time favorite movies, I don't even like that they even showed his face, you know, the guy at the end. I wish they wouldn't have even done that scene. Yeah, I never understood why they did that, honestly. And it, it really, you know, and why he had to put the mask back on after he got shot. I don't understand that either. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it made no sense to me. They should have just kept the mask on and went with it. Yeah, get, because... Get Tony Moran a, a little... Two minutes of fame there, I guess. Yeah, there you go. And uh, I know audience the whole time are like, I wonder what he looks like. I wonder what he looks That's what they were <laughs> thinking. But I yeah. wish they would have just left that, yeah. that as a mystery. That is my one one critique of the film. But anyway, so next up, we, we don't have too much left. But Dr. Loomis is still at the Myers house. He suddenly sees, like you said, T-Man, the Smith Grove sanitarium car. And he starts running down the street trying to find out where he could possibly be. Lori had just checked on the kids, so she grabs her keys and she heads across the street to investigate the Wallace house. While she's there, she finds Annie and Linda's bodies. Michael then attacks her and she falls over the upstairs railing, crashing to the floor. Michael heads after her and she barely escapes from the house. Now outside, she's screaming for help and ultimately rushes back to the Doyle house, banging on the door trying to get the kids to let her in all the while michael is in hot pursuit so now we're into the climax of the movie and what did you guys think of Lori's discoveries in the ensuing chase scene this is the whole moment that you see in all the slasher movies now like how jason Voorhees was able to hang people up and and put bodies strategically all over the house and and it was only mere minutes this is that moment where, you know, you got Annie in the bed with the tombstone. You got uh, Bob hanging from the wall, and then you got uh, Linda inside the closet. This is those scenes that are just kind of like, okay, we needed Lori to find them all, but it's kind of Scooby-Doo-esque moments here that are kind of like, <laughs> <really>? <laughs> Unveil them. do that. <laughs> Yeah, and how Pearl just told me exactly, like Pearl said, when they killed Bob, when Michael kills Bob, like how he was able to hang him up with a butcher knife, and a butcher knife would have never went completely through the body and had enough to go into the wall to hang him yeah. up. I mean, it's those little moments that you scratch your head, but it was, I love the reveal of it. Uh, you know, you just check your brain at the door and have fun with it and, and roll with it, and I thought it was perfect. I thought Lori's uh, reactions were, were so good. Mm -hmm. So on time. Now you're in full scare mode. Now she knows something's really going awry. She still don't know what it is, but she knows that her friends have died. You know, what's her first instinct? I got to get the kids. I got to go check on these kids. Perfect, man. Something about this sequence, I want to say, is in Scream, 
They mm-hmm. showed the the goth Bob falling from the top of the closet. I guess he hung him <laughs> up like a piece of clothes, and it yeah. scares me and scream when that <laughs> happens, and it pops down. So it inside of another movie, it frightens me. And this is the ultimate movie that does the. There's a there's a commercial out. I think it's Geico where the people are running from a bad guy, and they're like, "Let's hide in this room of chainsaws." Behind the chainsaws. Behind <laughs> those chainsaws. Look, why don't we get in the perfectly good car? When Jamie Lee's running from him, I'm like, <laughs> "Just run to the cop place. Quit falling down. Don't ring the doorbell. Don't go upstairs. You're just like it's the ultimate. You're like, stop. You're making all the wrong decisions. That's what makes it such a great movie because. John was able to put us in the movie and we are screaming at the TV. Like, why are you doing that? <laughs> yes. you know, I was why? screaming at the TV during it. Pearl said that I loved his when uh, Lori gets across and I'm fast forwarding about two seconds into the movie, but when Lori gets to the house and she's trying to open the door, Wes, and she's literally like, wait for Tommy. How long did it take Michael to get across that street for crying? <laughs> <laughs> it was forever, dude. <laughs> That would have literally took like 10 seconds to walk. And in the movie, it seemed like it took 20 minutes. Well, you know, it's funny you mention that because if if you reverse it, think of how long it takes Lori to walk across the street. True. True. Yeah. You know, it's a big street. Never he'll mention that John was trying to milk that scene for every penny it was worth before he's across. Like literally, he kept going back and forth. He's tying Pearl says he's tying his shoes. <laughs> literally, he wanted to set the tension mood so high, and it did it because you see yeah. her walking, you see the house, you see her walking, you see the house. The music's there. Well, now reverse it, like you said, Wes. And now that you got the stalker coming, and you hear that dun 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 dun, you know, you hear all that, and you're like, oh, I mean, it's it keys keys, and you're like, oh my god, and then you see the oh my god it's so scary man so creepy even now oh i can't sleep they, tonight girl they said that uh that while they were in the theater um uh, you know they had they had seen some people watching the movie and they and deborah said that you know a guy is like you know just yelled at the screen don't go in there you yeah. know to, to Lori. <laughs> Because she's just so slow walking across. The guy yeah. just couldn't take the anticipation because he knew what was waiting in the house for. I just thought that was such That's a cool John story. Carpenter for you, man. Perfect. Yeah, there's no movie that makes me scream at her or the you're screaming at the kid. You're like, open yeah. the door. This is urgent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. And the the scene where where Lori finds Annie dead in the bed. And she's got her hand over her mouth. She's so shocked. She backs up against the wall. The door opening beside her is pitch black. Mm-hmm. But Michael's white mask slowly comes into focus. And it accomplishes this by adding, they added just a little bit of exposure at, at a time until the mask is in full view. And it's just so brilliant. I love that so much, how they use that white mask to just appear out of the, the darkness. And then the last thing that I had on this scene is in Halloween 6, which a lot of fans don't like that that movie. I actually love it. But uh, in Halloween 6, they imitate the scene where Lori is running across the street and they can't get into the house because the, the door is locked. So I thought that was cool how they kind of brought that back later in the series. Yeah. T-Man, do you have anything on this before we move on to the last set of scenes? No, I think you guys did a great job analyzing it. The only thing I'll add is just I agree 100% about 
uh, Lori walking across the street. I really like that scene because it is so tension-filled. So that's the only thing I'll kind of just add to that. All right. We're, we're in the home stretch here. The last set of scenes, we've got Tommy barely gets the door open in time for Lori. Michael finds his way into the house and attacks Lori again. She thinks she's killed him. Meanwhile, Loomis is still hurrying down the street when Sheriff Brackett runs into him. Loomis shares the news that he's found the car, and now the sheriff is bought into what's happening. Michael pops up and chases Lori and the kids around the house. Lori again thinks she's killed him and sends the kids out to call the police. The kids run out of the house screaming, attracting the attention of Dr. Loomis. Michael pops back up and starts to strangle Lori. Loomis comes in the house and unloads his gun on Michael, shooting him off the balcony. He looks down and sees that he's dead. And Lori says, it was the boogeyman? And Dr. Loomis solemnly replies, as a matter of fact, it was. And then looking back down, he sees in horror that Michael has vanished. And Lori realizes that Michael is still not dead and begins to sob. The film ends with a shot of the Myers house and the sound of Michael breathing heavily in his mask. So, okay, guys, we've made it through the movie. And, Greg, why don't you tell us about the ending here? What, what did you like? What stuck, out, what stood out to you about all this? Everything. I mean, the, the, the whole music is full tilt now. Michael is, like, everywhere. Lori is injured. She's the whole body lift it happens at the closet scene which is you know clearly where the undertaker got his raise uh you know as far as his character everything in this part is just perfection to me it, it was paced right it was shot right it was musically scored right i mean it was just perfect to me and all the way up to the scene like donald Placence uh had mentioned at the end of the movie he asked john carpenter like once he shoots him six times, he goes over the balcony. John Carpenter said, Donald asked him, like, how do you want me to handle that scene? Do you want me to handle it with, oh, my God, he's not here? Or do you want me to handle it? He's not here thinking maybe I already knew that, you know. And John's like, wow, I've never heard anybody ask me a question like that. Just do it both ways and I'll decide later. I mean, it's those little moments like that. It's just perfection. Um Oh my God, dude, the tension in that moment, just those last 10 minutes of this movie is, is more tension than I've ever seen in any movie. And it still holds me today. It still, uh, creeps me out. I still feel like Lori's going to get caught and I still feel like, you know, Michael's going to finally kill her. And it's just, I, I can't get it out of my head. Like how much tension is in those scenes. And that's due to direction, acting, cinematography, everything lightning, man, it's perfect. Yeah, I'll just add on to that, Greg. I mean, that last sequence is so amazing. And the two elements that I love the most are the last line. I mean, that last line yeah. is just so perfect. <laughs> Could, yeah. Couldn't have come up with a better line than that. Uh, I, I mean, I still think about it to this day. And then, of course, the last shot of Michael not being there after he's been shot and fell through the window. Yeah. It's like, it, it always reminds me of like, that's when, in my opinion, Michael truly becomes just not only the shape, but just pure evil. Because mm -hmm. you can't kill evil. You can't ultimately kill that. And it, the movie's basically saying that Michael is something that's just not, he's above, he's not a human. He's hes like out there in the ether. He's just pure evil, and you can't kill it. Yeah. I'll tell you the scene that creeps me out the most is 
and it's the way that he does it when he's laying flat on his back and then he sits up mm-hmm. like and you think he's dead the way yeah. that he just sits up his arms are like by his side and he just slowly tilts up it's just oh my gosh mm-hmm. just the i don't know how they directed him to do that but does that not creep you guys out oh yeah oh yeah well the head turn is well gabe he mm-hmm. sits straight yeah. up and then he slowly then, turns his head to look at Lori. Yeah. It's like how mechanical he does it that makes him so creepy. I, I wouldn't have thought it. But I'll tell you what also creeps me out is, does Lori fall asleep after she st- stabs him to death right there on the couch? I mean, I just killed this guy. I think I'll take a nap. It's <laughs> over. Like, what's going through her head? Yeah. Like, uh, yep, it's over. Nap time. <laughs> <laughs> People have criticized that over the years, you know, that that she didn't check on him after she stuck him with the needle. And yeah. then after she stabs him in the closet, you know, she picks up, gets his knife. And after she pokes him in the eye and then stabs him in the chest and then drops the knife again, you know, a lot of people were, you know, yelling and stuff about that. But again, I just chalk that up to just think about a time when you've been extremely panicked or, or something crazy's happened. It's just hard to think in those situations. I joke, but you would do that. But I mean, everybody in the audience is exactly what you're saying. Wes is going, stab him again, shoot yeah. him in the head. <laughs> It's the ultimate one of those. Hit him, shoot him in the head. Well, cut his, cut I think we are in that generation now that has seen all these movies. I think that's always yeah. the key thing that we've seen a thousand movies like this. So we would know what to do, hopefully. Like we've seen these people come back to, to life a thousand times. Like <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis, she has it. You know, she, she she's point. pretty innocent and she doesn't know, like she's not used to that. We are. I mean, that's Lily. We've seen this stuff a thousand times. So I think we would be better prepared. Uh, I guess you just never know, though. CT, man, that's a good point, because up to this point, how many movies had seen the killer, you know, be fatally shot, you think, and then you see him and he's gone. Most movies were worn and out, so the killer was either dead or disappeared, but you never saw it like what they did with this. This was almost Mm -hmm. like the the uniqueness of what Halloween started, and uh, that was perfect, man, just so cool. Greg, I love that you brought up about the the ending. I actually had that down as a note as well about, you know, Donald Pleasance asking John, you know, how he should play it. And I love that John ultimately decided to go with the I knew this would happen reaction from Loomis. That that was better than the shock. It's Mm -hmm. like Loomis had spent all this time with him. He's like, I'm not surprised. And then if you notice... After all that is happening, you get like a little bit of a montage where they shoot all of these different shots and Michael's not there, but you can hear the breathing. And basically what that's saying is he's not just gone. Now he's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, they just basically let you see everywhere that he was at. Everywhere there was a kill scene, everywhere there was a chase scene, everywhere Michael had physically been they just done a reverse and just went back through it and like you said it's he's here now you know <laughs> he he came home and he's here to stay and that was just like oh so the last thing we'll do here is just as we're wrapping up just real quick give me your final thoughts on halloween and or john carpenter whatever you want to say I, after i'll do that after talking through this movie I'm and I joked earlier how much pressure he mo- must have been under and how much pressure West must have been under with this movie. But <laughs> directing a movie called Halloween, it created so many things. Like, and I'm glad I said what I said earlier with when I said that um, this movie really created the slasher and, and threw it forward. It created the the run. So many things that 
and none nobody really duplicated them as well. So I'm so glad on Halloween I get to go back and watch this movie Halloween. Um, I love it. I love everything about it. I would just add uh, the one thing that I really took away from watching it again was just how good John Carpenter was at, at directing it. And it made me appreciate his career even more. You know, I've watched The Thing recently, another one of his just iconic masterpieces. And I've watched They Live not too long ago, you know, a great satire of 80s uh, materialism. There's so many great films that he's done. And, um, you know, I'm not thinking about like Ghost of Mars. That's not one of them I'm thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like you said, Wes, every, every filmmaker has his down days, but he has such a varied and fantastic film career and filmography it's one of those that if film fans have not gone back to kind of watch some of his earlier masterpieces i would highly recommend that you do greg take us home what's your final thoughts on halloween yeah i mean clearly it's a 10 for me and it's my favorite film of all time not just horror i mean it is my favorite film of all time hands down and it 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 just it, it started the love of the genre as i mentioned at the very beginning i mean it's because of this movie alone that I, I became who I became, which is nothing. But I mean, because I love horror is because of this movie and it'll always hold that space in my heart. I, I would love for a movie to come across and, and knock it off the, the totem pole, so to speak. Ain't never going to happen. This movie is just, it, it can never be touched. I will continue to support this movie to no end. I'll continue to preach this movie to no end. I'll continue buying every freaking release it comes out with just because because they might add one little flavor to it. I'm going to continue doing it. I'm going to continue buying the figures. My wife bought me this amazing freaking replica of Michael Myers house for our one year anniversary. And uh, so cool. I saw pictures online. It is so cool. Sean Clark's fiance, nay made it. And I'm telling you handmade. It's freaking phenomenal. And, and it was amazing. I was watching Halloween today and the house is right beside the TV, and Pearl said, look, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh my God, I got the house beside the house. It's like insane. <laughs> so I, I just, I eat and breathe this world. This Halloween world is my world. Halloween's every day to me. It's not just a month. Uh, every day is Halloween for me, and and this movie's the reason for that. Michael Myers is a reason for that, and uh, I tell you, anybody that's never seen this movie, I think through this podcast, hopefully you will have a, a fondness to go check it out. Uh, if you have watched this movie, maybe didn't get it, hopefully through this podcast, maybe we even lighten some a little bit on some inside things. Uh, great job, Wes, on what you've done. But uh, I, I just enjoy this movie so much, man. I'm telling you, it's I can't never not talk about this movie. Like <laughs> I literally, <laughs> early in my podcast career, I literally had people that would message me and say that, you know, like, why don't you just call your podcast Halloween or, or (laughs) why do you always talk about Halloween? Why can't you talk about any other movie? It's because it's what I love. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm not going to apologize. Halloween is a perfect film to me. Well, Greg, you were the perfect guest for this. That's exactly why I I was like, you know, this is our first year as a podcast and it's our first time going through the you know october halloween season and i just i wanted to do this i go back and forth is is the shining my favorite horror movie or is halloween my favorite horror movie it just 
I have a hard time with it, but I knew when I decided, all right, let me, let's do Halloween for our first year. I was like, we got to get Greg to come on. I was so hoping you would say yes. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for taking the time to hang out with us tonight. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting. Seriously, man. It's uh, anytime I can talk Halloween, I don't care where it's at. (laughs) I thought it might entice you to come on over if I told you, Hey, we're talking Halloween. So if you will, tell the audience one more time, those that are, are still with us after we've talked Halloween for the last couple hours, just tell them where they can keep up with your, your podcast and interact with you on social media. Uh, Podcast-wise, you can head over to landofthecreeps.blogspot.com and check us out there. We're available via all the platforms, iTunes. Well, I think it's Apple. I don't think it's called iTunes no more, but whatever it is. Uh, Stitch, Apple Pod, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you can find a podcast, we should be available. Unfortunately, with like Apple Pod and different ones, they only allow so many episodes up. So if you want to see back catalogs, you would have to go to the website and go over there and, and listen to them. Uh, other than that, I mean, you can always follow me on Facebook. We do have a group page, fan page over there, uh, both. Uh, you can also follow me personally if you'd like, Greg Morgan. Send me a friend request. Let me know you're a podcaster or someone that's heard me on the podcast. I don't just accept everybody. Um, also, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, all them places, uh, Greg and Mortis. And uh, you can email me if you ever want to. <laughs> I don't know why you would, but if you do, it's gregamortis666 at gmail.com. And uh, I'll try to get back to you there as well. So. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, buddy, to come over here. I do like your podcast. I love you guys. Uh, you guys are so funny, man. You keep me rolling. I was pissed <laughs> off that you didn't let me come on the baseball episode. That's okay. <laughs> We're going to do um, – we will eventually do like a, a top – like we did with our football movie. We'll do like a top five baseball movie. And, Greg, if you want to come back and talk baseball movies with us, we'd love to have you. Sandlot. Hey. Uh, sure. Sandlot. Hey, <laughs> Sandlot. <laughs> They're saying, saying like, uh, okay, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, you can follow me over there. I'm also on Letterboxd, too. I don't do a lot over there. You can follow me, Greg Mortis, over there as well. Well, up next for Real Talk, we will continue our horror movie month with Gabe's Choice, which is 1996's Scream, with special guest host Jason Piles, a.k.a. Jay of the Dead, is joining My us buddy. for yep. Yes! And Greg loves Jay. Jay and Greg are good friends. So Jay we're, we're happy amazing. to be on. Yes. Good luck on that one, man. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, I think it, it's going to be good. It's And it's a great follow-up to Halloween as well because the movies, you know, connect. You know, Scream really was paying homage to Halloween in a way. So can't wait to talk that. And for our listeners, thank you so much for your support. You know, we're just having a good time talking about movies and getting to know new people. Your willingness to listen to us every week means the world to us. And for those who are new, we're trying to grow our podcast and reach a larger audience. A couple of things you can do to support us. Number one, subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast directory. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Real. R-E-E-L underscore cast. We're on Facebook, Real Talk, a movie podcast page. And finally, if you have any suggestions for our show, any episodes you want to hear, send us an email with those details. You can send that to realtalkmoviecast, that's all together, at gmail.com. And for us, that's a wrap. <laughs>